okay, we got a problem. We got bombings that are going on across the country, and we think the communists and the anarchists are behind it. There is a historical fact out there that the FBI sent Martin Luther King Jr. a letter that said, hey man, we know about your extramarital affairs and you need to stop. This is not speculation. It is known and it is in the news that we have foreign governments who reach into the United States and they attempt to impact to change, to subvert the way that people here in the United States talk, think, vote, live their lives. Because however they're living their lives in the United States, that foreign country says that's against our interests. Welcome to 1023 Podcast, from on scene to on air with those who are there. Before we get started, we need to make a special mention to our sponsor for this episode, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Just kidding. The FBI actually doesn't sponsor this show, but for this episode, we interviewed FBI Special Agent Chris Nicholas, who has spent the majority of his time working in FBI counterintelligence. Chris talked to us about counterintelligence operations, some FBI history, and we discussed a little-known but extremely prevalent crime called transnational repression. Chris is one of the many good folks out there doing great work, and we're very honored to have had him on the show. We'd also like to thank Ms. Katie Chomont of the FBI Dallas Division Public Affairs Office for her assistance in helping us get all the necessary approvals to make this episode happen. With those things said... Please enjoy episode 10-5 with our friend, Special Agent Chris Nicholas. As always, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Lastly, the views and opinions of the individuals featured on 1023 Podcast do not necessarily reflect those of their employers or their profession. Viewer discretion is advised. This is 1023 Podcast, episode 10-5, with myself, Hunter Fithin, Brandon Jones, uh, the lovely and talented Ashley Fithin, and our special guest, uh, Christopher Nicholas uh, with the FBI. I'm going to let him introduce himself in more depth, and we're going to talk about um, just all the cool stuff that he's that he's done and that he's continuing to do. Um, and real quick, to explain our, our 10 code episode title, 105, uh, at least in this neck of the wood, neck of the woods typically means um, to relay some information. We don't typically use that a lot, um, actually out in the field, but uh, an example of it might be, you know, if you're um, in a vehicle pursuit or something like that, that's going into a, a neighboring jurisdiction, I guess you could get on the radio and, and advise your dispatch to 10-5 it to the neighboring agency and relay information. So that's kind of what that means. We don't use it a lot. Um, but anyway, um, Chris, thanks for coming out. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. And one thing to clarify, this uh, the FBI is a team, and the work that I've done has always been part of a team. Hopefully you get to talk about some cool stuff, but ain't about me. It's about the agency and the work that's been done, and I'm, I am super proud of it. Um, but also, 
just grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk with y'all and and take advantage of the platform that you guys have to hopefully share some information and some insight about the FBI and particularly our counterintelligence mission because that's that's been my whole career. Yeah. Uh, no. Well, we appreciate you coming. Out. I mean, it's uh, we're recording this on a on a Saturday morning, so um, it's. We're super thankful that you're willing to come out on a Saturday and for sure. sit down with us for a few hours and uh, and talk about all this stuff. And um, I'm excited to get into it. But let's start off with, um, man, just kind of introduce yourself to us. Uh, like, where where are you born? Where'd you grow up? And how did sure. you get involved in the in the FBI? Yeah, well, and when we were talking off air, I mentioned it's kind of the the Forrest Gump approach to life. I I didn't have, never had much of a plan. Just some big kind of broad ideas and have been just blessed beyond measure to have stumbled into into really cool things. So I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, all the way through high school, and then uh, had the opportunity to go out to Boston to go to college. And while there in college, I joined ROTC. And so first job out of, out of college was the Army. Um, Great opportunities there. I spent some time down in in uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia, uh, with the Third Infantry Division, which is a great unit. Got to do lots of unique training. Got to see the world a little bit. It was very sandy parts of the world that were generally very hot. Uh, but this is in the mid late 1990s, so before the before the war on terror started. Um, Spent a little bit of time at the Army's schoolhouse at then Fort Benning, which I think is now called Fort Moore, Georgia, um, which a lot of fun. Had a chance to to uh, train young officers to be infantry officers and also had a chance to uh, command one of the companies at the Army's Airborne School, which that's just a ridiculous amount of fun <laughs> getting paid to jump out of perfectly good airplanes every day. Um, and then my last assignment in the Army was up at Fort Drum, New York, which is a place a lot of people say stay away from. was not my experience at all. Like, it's beautiful in upstate New York. You're right up near the Canadian border. You got to like the cold, and you got to like snow. But it's, it's a real sportsman's paradise up there. And so it was a, it was a great assignment. And you know, talking about kind of stumbling my way through life as a kid, I thought, and kid, young, young man, early twenties, I thought I was going to be in the army for a full career and life happened. And I met my wife and we got married. And at a certain point in time, it just became apparent to me that if I was going to remain married and, <laughs> and have a, a good relationship, I needed to find something else to do and you know what had the opportunity to uh, meet up with an fbi agent who had been a soldier and had been assigned to fort drum and so there was a little bit of networking there and that guy really took me under his wing and helped me through the application process and i was really fortunate that uh, from the time that I left the Army until the time I started at the FBI Academy was about a month and a half. So I had very oh, little, wow. very little time in between. Um, and so roughly 2004, I showed up at, at the FBI Academy in Quantico trying to figure out 
what the heck is an FBI agent and how does this go? Because mm-hmm. all I really knew was the movies and kind of, you know, popular culture type stuff. I see. That's that's all I know about the FBI is all, all the cool movies and TV. But can you talk a little bit about um what the, the training program is like for the FBI Academy? Sure. So it varies. Like they're they're tweaking it all the time and and it may be the same for police academies all over the place. As I recall, it was roughly five months long for us. It is definitely um, you know, it's initial entry training. It's basic training. It's designed to take somebody who was in some other line of work and turn them into a capable baseline investigator. And okay. I, I think that is, that is a, a th- you know, that's something to point out. We are not police. We are not a national police force. We are special agents. There's a particular position code in the U.S. government called 1811 for our type of special agent. There's different types of special agents. Um, but we're investigators. So I see. Think of us as detectives. Like we come right out of our academy and we are expected to be detectives. I see. Okay. See, that's interesting because well, I'll get a lot of questions from um, friends and family that are not in law enforcement or anything. And there's questions about um, like formal uh, titles sometimes. Like, um, hey, what's the difference between like being a, a police officer and a sheriff's deputy? And trying to explain to people like well there's not a lot of like differences power wise and like like what you're able to do um but i do think it's interesting that so would it be correct to say that in the fbi y'all don't have fbi officers or yeah um a- actually we do uh, okay so there is an fbi police force it mm-hmm. is uh it is a small sub agency within the bureau gotcha um and they are primarily intended at their the primary thing that they do is secure several of our facilities okay so they're uh, not they're not so much like a like i know you mentioned like not like a national police force but they're more of a just a security element to the agency well that's a primary function but they are police so okay. they do have law enforcement authorities um but but they are not doing the long-term investigations of the fbi i see okay okay so what does it look like you uh you go through the fbi academy and you come out the other end of that pipeline and you're you're expected to be this this investigator um what happens from there like do you get like a specific assignment sure so it your fate starts to be defined, I think, like six weeks into the academy. Um, so when you first show up, you and this changes over the course of time how they do it. But basically, you tell the FBI, here are the places I'd like to go to. And the FBI will do whatever its HR magic is. And about six weeks in, you'll get orders night when they'll tell you, hey, you're going to Anchorage, you're going to El Paso, you're going wherever. And for me, it was Washington, D.C., which was super cool because um, my wife 
was already in D.C. working as an attorney and I was kind of nervous because I wasn't sure, you know, am I going to yeah. am I going to be in a long distance relationship with my wife because I get assigned to frickin Honolulu or mm -hmm. so. Um, so it was great to to get WFO. It's what I wanted. Uh, WFO, our Washington field office. Sometimes folks don't realize that there's a difference between FBI headquarters, which is also in downtown D.C., and our field office, which is about four or five blocks away. So I was assigned to the Washington field office of the FBI, which is an investigative component, not a headquarters component. Okay. Okay. Well, that's cool. So you're assigned there. Um, tell us about kind of yeah. what, what that was like going there for the first time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, a complete change in career and I had no real idea what to expect and got very fortunate that my first job was a temporary duty. This was at the transition between the first and second George W. Bush administrations. And when that happens, when you have an election and a new administration, you know, an administration comes in, a lot of new people come into the government and you have to do background investigations for their clearances. Um, the FBI has a role to play in that whole process. And so that was my job for like six months was talking to all sorts of folks. Um, and just, it was, it was like, I got a thousand repetitions of doing a basic field interview. Wow. So who are you? What do you do? You know, you know, this person who's applied for a job in the administration, are they trustworthy? And I got to use my credentials and I got very confident presenting myself as an FBI agent. I also got to learn the entire Washington DC area because I had to drive it all. And this was in the days before uh, cell phone GPS. And so I got great area knowledge of a very complicated town like there's a lot yeah. going on in that big in that city. I, I've never been there, but I, I can only imagine. Um, yeah, that that would be super challenging. Um, from like the local sheriff's deputy perspective, that's like one of the hardest parts of field training is learning your area yep. really well. Um, just where you know you don't need a GPS or anything; you just know where things are. Um, but that's cool. And then on, on the note of um, getting to do all these interviews with people and everything. I'm assuming that like in the in the basic FBI Academy, do they put you guys through a pretty good interview and interrogation school? And yeah, for sure. Um, so there's a there's a kind of construct that they put in place to guide the training. It's the model case, you know, so they'll say throughout the course of your your academy time, you're going to be investigating, you know, this made up person for this crime. And it's all kind of iterative. So every experience, you get more information about the case and you get more opportunities to interview and talk with folks. And what really comes across to me, and it's it's something that I've shared with everybody that I've had the privilege to, to supervise or work with or mentor in my time, the, the true tools of an investigator Man, it's your notebook, it's your pen, and it's your brain. 
you know, your, yeah, your firearm, your handcuffs, those are tools for a really bad day. Yeah. Um, those are very extreme last resort tools. Right. But so kind of on that note, um, just cause I'm curious about, about the whole training pipeline for, for the FBI basic Academy. So they do, it sounds like they do a very good, um, interview interrogation school with, with real good practical training. And then for those, you know, potential very bad days. Yep. What what kind of training is there for that? It it's excellent tactical instruction. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but we have at the academy what we call Hogan's Alley, and and so I think we actually had some Hollywood folks come back in the day, and they built a small town on our academy, and. I forget how they describe it, but it's essentially the most crime-ridden town in America because <laughs> every day there's multiple violations of federal law that occur. Mm. Um, and so you get lots of reps going from, you know, an interview that breaks bad because mm. somebody is having a bad day and they want to take it out on you all the way through, you know, planned searches, planned arrest operations, room clearances, you get exposed to a lot. Um, so yeah, absolutely. World-class tactical training. That's super awesome. At, at the local sheriff's office level, we mostly just use like abandoned old buildings, sure. or factories or whatever, and we'll run ourselves through those, but that's super cool. Um, cool. So go through all that. You get to the, uh, the WFO yep. and kind of get started there. Um, Moving forward a little bit, I don't want to skip past anything. So if sure. I'm if I'm, try, if I'm starting to skip past something cool, stop me. But um, how do you get involved in counterintelligence? Yeah, so we're not skipping past anything at all. Um, so this is hard for for even me to think about it. But this is 2005, and so uh, 9/11 is very very present in everybody's memory, and it's a motivating factor for all of us. And when I left the army, I thought I was going to be doing counterterrorism for the rest of, of my career. Um, I don't know what it says about me that I have all these plans and then I end up doing something <laughs> completely different. Um, I think that's most of us. But as I was going through this kind of background check temporary duty, I got connected with one of the squads uh, that worked downtown that did Russian counterintelligence. And kind of just developed some relationships with the agents that were on the squad. And they were really uh, kind and, and generous with me, giving me opportunities to take part in you know, particular operations that they were doing at the time. And so I, I kind of had a shift in my brain. And I said, boy, this counterintelligence work is fascinating. And while the Russians in 2005 weren't the bad guys that they were when they were the Soviet Union, they were. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But we didn't perceive them to be the bad guys that they were during the Soviet Cold War era. And they weren't the bad guys that we perceive them to be now. They still were a near peer competitor to the United States and very much somebody that the FBI was paying attention to um, because they were here. They were conducting intelligence operations, trying to steal our classified information. Sure. And that needed to be stopped. Mm -hmm. And so 
they had an opening on that particular squad and they, they made an offer to me that, you know, would I want to, to kind of, you know, apply for it. It's, it's not really applying for it. It's basically does the supervisor of the squad want me and that worked out. And I spent the next four plus years of my career doing some really cool counterintelligence work against the Russians. That's super awesome. Um, can you talk about any of that? Any like highlights from those four years? Yeah. Um, I can't talk about any specifics of it. What I'll tell you is it was some of the best training, some of the best preparation, some of the best experiences that I could get. And I've heard you guys talk before about how, you know, the work is some of the best training because if you're doing it right, you're learning Mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. And it's, it's no different for us. And I, I should have said this, um, when we graduate from the academy, we enter what is um, what we call our probationary agent period. So we have two years to demonstrate that we can be full functioning investigators. And if we can't demonstrate that, there's a accelerated process to get us out of the agency and let us go do whatever, I see. whatever we're meant to do with our lives. Um, and so that's also relevant as I'm going through this work in Russian counterintelligence, like I'm learning the tools that I need to be effective at the right. job. And so we can talk about this if you guys want. I learned one of the most important tools that we have, which is our Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act um, authorities. It's so in the criminal investigative world, it's Title Three, right? Okay. A lot yeah, of people right. have heard about that. It's mm-hmm. wiretapping. Mm-hmm. In the national security world, we're governed by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, which has been amended, and it's in the process of being amended again <laughs> right now as we talk. Yeah. Um, but that's our legal basis to use electronic surveillance in our investigations, and and that's a complicated tool. Yeah. Let's definitely talk about that because sure. – um, yeah, th- this is this will be really interesting. Now, rewinding just a little bit, I do have one question about. So, this time you spend doing the the Russian counterintelligence yeah. and all that. Whenever you're working this type of uh, assignment, is it something where you're um, really just kind of treated like an adult and like get, given the the responsibilities and expected to carry out carry out what you need to carry out, or are you being like heavily supervised and managed and uh, or is it a little bit of both? Um, my experience has been we are we are absolutely supervised and given wide latitude to perform our investigations gotcha. in a way that makes sense to us as the investigators um, and that comport with law and policy and regulation. Sure. That doesn't mean we're lone wolves. We're part of a squad. We're part of an organization. We rely on our colleagues. I have a training agent, uh, just like you guys have an FTO. We have mm-hmm. field training agents for those first two years. That that person's given me their guidance and mentorship. Gotcha. So you never operate on your own in a vacuum. But yes, we're. My experience has always been: we're trusted, we're trained. Go do your job, yeah. agent, and and. 
ask the bosses for help when you need it. Yeah. Ask the bosses for resources when you need it, but otherwise go do your work. Yeah. That's good. I, I like that. I, we've talked about it on this podcast before, but I think for any kind of law enforcement work, the individual being able to have some discretionary power over things is super important. So I think that's cool that that's, that that's there, but yeah. So moving on to the, the FISA stuff and all that, as we kind of get into that, um, I guess um, for the audience, for those who may not be familiar um, with kind of, I know we just briefly touched on what FISA is, but can you um, speak to where some of that comes from and and why it's set up the way it is? Yeah. Okay. So until 1978, there was no legal mechanism where the FBI or any other uh, federal counterintelligence entity could do electronic surveillance of subjects. And prior to 1968, there was no legal way for anybody to do electronic surveillance, even in uh, criminal investigations. So that didn't mean the FBI didn't do it. Sure. What it meant was from basically the time we started electronic surveillance until 1968, when we got authority to do it in criminal investigations, we said under our executive branch kind of responsibilities and authorities, and with the concurrence of the president and the attorney general, we can do these activities that would otherwise be illegal as long as we don't use them in court. So they could be used okay. for lead generation. Okay. Um, and then after 1968, we continued to say that, well, as long as the president and the attorney general are cool with us using electronic surveillance in national security cases that don't, where we don't use that information in court, we're fine. And, you know, there is an argument to be made that that was completely and totally illegal. And I'm not going to say the people making that argument are wrong, but there is also, I think, a legitimate school of thought that the president, under his constitutional authorities as the commander-in-chief responsible for foreign policy, could authorize electronic surveillance outside of a judicial context for national security for things that pertain to the national security. Right, yeah. That's not the world we live in. I'm not staking out a position one way or the other um, other than to say the world that we live in now for national security investigations, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, is mm -hmm. what gives me as an investigator legal authority to use electronic surveillance as a tool. I see. So like on that note with the, the authority to use it and everything, what are some of the, uh, the criteria that you would look for if you're going to, to go that route and you're going to try and use this as a tool? What kind of boxes have to be checked in order to have authorization to use it? Yeah. So there, there, is, a, there is an idea out in the public, and I've heard it um, in, from media sources and elsewhere, that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is where we make our warrant applications to, 
that that's just a rubber stamp and they'll just approve anything. Um, and that somehow the FBI doesn't have to do any kind of due diligence because it's an in-camera proceeding, meaning it's one party. It's the government going to the court and saying, we need these authorities. So as an agent, I have to establish probable cause to believe that an entity is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power and acting as such in the United States, or that a person is an agent of a foreign power acting as such in the United States. Okay. And generally, especially when we're dealing with people, we're further required to to show probable cause that they're acting in a clandestine intelligence capacity. I see. So it's not, because um, I know there's, there's, there's some controversy like there always is with stuff like this. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that these things, uh, this type of surveillance can just be used on like almost any, any American citizen, like on a whim, which is not the case. Absolutely. So, like not. they have to be like with the, the, those, those searches have to be within these parameters. And so it's all for, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, in the interest of national security and, and the probable cause showing that is, I know we've talked about it on this on this podcast before, but we memorize that in, a, in our police academy. But it's, um, probable cause is, is um, facts and circumstances that would lead a reasonable and prudent person to believe that a crime has been, is being, or will be committed. And so that's a, uh, a jumble of words to say that it's not willy-nilly just... Yeah. wild discretionary power it's very honed in to criminal activity yeah and probable cause doesn't change just because we're dealing at the federal level it is exactly the same the only thing that we add at the federal level is in addition to crime has has occurred may occur or is occurring mm -hmm. we add threat to national security has, is, or may be occurring. Gotcha. And so, so FISA is not a criminal investigative tool. That doesn't mean the fruits of it can't be used, but the primary purpose behind a FISA cannot be for a criminal investigation. Gotcha. So, so would it be fair for my own understanding to, to say that like FISA is for national security matters? Um, but if something comes out of one of those um, cases that it's like, hey, by the way, we also stumbled upon there's this big, you know, criminal operation operating here, that information can be then, I guess there's a process to take that and apply it to a criminal investigation. For sure. Okay. And, and there's also a world where it's not we're doing the counterintelligence investigation and we find an unrelated criminal matter. Right. There's we're investigating a threat to national security and we determine and it also violates U.S. federal law. Gotcha. And so, yes, there is a process to take that information, all of which is inherently classified and use it in an unclassified court proceeding. For anybody who's interested, it's called SEPA, the Classified Information Protection Act. Um, and, and that's the process. 
I see. I was gonna <laughs> excuse. I was gonna ask it. So the Patriot Act is that an extension of that, or is it totally separate? So, I, I I'm not an expert, and so on, on on how the Patriot Act interacted with FISA. So I I don't know the answer to that. I know it it did have some impact on our authorities overall. What I know for sure, um, 1978 was when it was was initially established and then it was amended in 2008 and forgive me i'm looking through some of my notes because i may have actually written it down but of course that's that's impossible to find when you actually need it <laughs> naturally um, well and the uh yeah. the patriot act is is a lot more recent it's 2001 uh, i was looking it up as you were yeah. talking because yeah. it, it made me think of that and i'm it sounded familiar with what at least in my mind the uh, partially what the Patriot Act was part of. Of course, it stemmed after 9-11, uh, given the government certain powers for, I don't, and I'm no expert on it at all, I'm just kind of looking it up here, but it just, tools required for intercepting and obstructing uh, terrorism. So it's kind of broad. Yeah, and and so I, I, I really don't remember the particulars other than, as I recall, it was intended to um, – kind of codify and streamline our understanding as federal law enforcement of how we could use information from classified information sources in counterterrorism investigations for sure, but national security writ large. One of the things that, that I think has been lost in the 1990s, there was it's often called like the Chinese wall. And I don't know why other than maybe the great wall of China, but there was, there was a doctrine that the department of justice, parts of the department of justice were advocating. And I wasn't there at the time. This is me reading through different kind of history books where um, the idea was information learned in a national security investigation absolutely could not be used in a criminal investigation and even more so couldn't be shared with criminal investigators. And, and I've read that, you know, I've heard some folks say that that, that wall absolutely existed. It was hard, it was firm and it, and it created some problems. There are people who point to, you know, prior to 9-11, there was an investigation out of our Minneapolis office, and this is all public record. Like you can, I, I wrote down a bunch of the books that I use to kind of prepare myself today, and I'll give those at some point, but like you can read about this stuff. There was a relevant investigation out of Minneapolis. There was, I think, an investigation out of Phoenix. May have been something down in Florida as well. And like all of those dots, despite agents in those offices saying, Hey, there's some weird stuff going on. Like it didn't all get connected into, Oh, nine 11 is going to happen. I'm not taking a position on whether it should have been or not. Like this is hard, hard work. And, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, you know, not unfortunately people's expectations of the FBI are huge and, and rightfully so. Sure. Um, but, investigations take time and and well, it's a lot easier to yeah. say hey they should have caught this when you know the outcome right. we know not 9 11 happened and we can go back and say hey maybe we should have connected right. these dots but at the time say call it 1992 
Well, maybe, I mean, those dots weren't as apparent because we didn't know what was going to happen in 2001. So it, it's really, I think it's probably easy for people that aren't involved in that type of business to, to point fingers and say, hey, why didn't they catch this? But in reality, we, I mean, we didn't know what we didn't know then. And so I think that's probably part of that. Yeah. And, and so pulling that back into the Patriot Act, like that's always been my understanding of the Patriot Act is to, to make it clear that that wall did not need to exist under the FISA legislation as it was written and as it was understood by reasonable people. Um, so anyways, that's yeah, that's yeah. kind of the limit of, of my familiarity with the Patriot Act specifically. Well, in talking about the, the criminal part of that, and, and it can't be used for that, so um, it, it may get kind of complicated and confusing, but say, uh, you know, I think it'd be opium, uh, say that goes back and, and potentially funds terrorism, but on the street level, you know, I think it goes into, I think it doesn't make heroin or whatnot, so that's, so, yes. so heroin's an illegal drug in the United States that say maybe a, a criminal street gang in the U.S. is selling, well, that's a criminal thing, but if you follow it all the way up the chain, it could potentially have ties to terrorism. So how does that, do those lines get, I mean, how do you distinguish between the two? Hey, this is just local United States uh, crime, not terrorism, but technically if you followed up the line, it is it could lead to terrorism. How does that work? How do you distinguish between the two? Um, so... I'll, I'll take it as a general idea. I'm not going to be able to answer that specific question, but ultimately we have to make decisions as investigators, as an agency, as a department of justice, what is the value of the intelligence information that we are gaining through these classified sources vice any criminal activity that we may learn about. Right. And, and so it's, it's just a cost-benefit analysis in my experience. I'm aware of criminal activity through my counterintelligence investigation. If I use that counterintelligence information to address the criminal issue, is that a good reason to take my counterintelligence FISA sources of information and expose them? I see. Well, and so... On this whole note of the FISA stuff and um, the criminal side of things and the national security part of things, it sounded to me like the the FBI has this very unique mission where um, it's a it's a law enforcement agency, but then it's also got the intelligence yeah. agency part of it. And uh, would that be fair to say that it's just kind of a balancing act of of being law enforcement and being intelligence? For sure, and and so. Thanks for teeing me up on that one, because that's that's one of the one of the things that I'm really passionate in talking about. So after 9-11, then Director Mueller came out very publicly and said, the FBI is now both an intelligence agency and a law enforcement agency. And like, I am not a historian. And as a disclaimer, any historical errors of fact those are mine and mine alone for the people who uh, who want to fact check me. But but I'm an amateur. Like, I love history. And so I've done a lot of reading. Um, and if you'll give me one second, I just want to give some credit. Um, so for anybody who is interested in this subject and wants to learn about it, there's two books by a guy named Ronald Kessler that I relied on. One's called The Bureau. And then the second is called The Bureau of Secret History. 
There's a book by a guy named John Barron called Operation Solo. Book by a guy named Tim Weiner called Enemies. And then the next several come from a gentleman named Darren Tremblay, The FBI Abroad. That's a book. And then two articles that he's written, The FBI's Border Coverage Program. And I picked that one because counterintelligence in Texas is a real thing. And I'd like to talk about it. Yeah. Um, but then he also wrote one called The Ambiguity of Intelligence Missions. And then the last book that I, I used was called Days of Rage by a guy named Brian Burrow. Um, so those are all the books that that I kind of read up on to, to get ready for the interview today. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check all those out. I like to read, um, especially about history and all that. But yeah, as far as like the historical accuracy goes... This is not really a show where we are too concerned about that. Uh, yeah, we've made some mistakes in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah just a little bit. We uh we referred to a um a midget with no legs as a quadriplegic, which we found out later was not accurate. Well, I think she actually had legs. We just yeah we misspoke. Or, yeah, on they a few were. Things. The story was accurate. Just the <laughs> medical diagnosis is a little bit off on right our on. part. Yeah, to say the least. I think we also referred to a uh like the name of a laxative that was actually the name of like a. A chemical explosive. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it. Yeah. If you're looking for historical accuracy, um, it may or may not be here. Don't check us on that. But, Fair enough. But yes. But go on. So, so going back to this idea of the FBI as both a law enforcement and an intelligence entity, what I see throughout our 115 odd year history is that we have been both of those things almost from our inception and and like every law enforcement agency relies on intel to drive criminal investigations that's just a given and we have also collected intelligence in a national security realm from very nearly the beginning now our processes and procedures have grown throughout the course of time for sure but like the way that I look at it, that that dual identity is what the American taxpayers deserve. There is no artificial barrier between, excuse me, between the investigator and the outcome. So other countries took different approaches, and I think the UK is a great example. They have MI5. That's their domestic intelligence agency. That is not a law enforcement agency. If they develop information that then needs to be prosecuted criminally, they've got to do a handoff. I think it's with a special branch of Scotland Yard. Don't, okay. don't hold me to that. But, but MI5 can't do a criminal investigation. That's interesting. Do you think that things get lost because in, the, in that – exchange of information that pass it down to a, a different entity uh would you suspect that things get lost in that i, I feel like that's not the most um the, not not the best way to do that because you would be losing things and this initial investigating agency gathers information right. that has to pass it on uh, so I'll, I'll take it from the fbi perspective i think it is the most efficient and impactful way to be able to to take threats to U.S. national security, and if warranted, if the probable cause exists, 
to then adjudicate it in a court of law for sure. And, and not having to do some kind of handoff. Yeah. I, I think that is just, that is, that is true ability to make a difference the way that the taxpayers expect. But some of the other things that, that I was kind of thinking about it. So it forces us to operate under the rule of law. Like there is a specific statute of federal code that says, FBI, here is how you can conduct electronic surveillance in a national security context. There's no making it up as I go along, kind of like there was pre-1978. And, and that's important to hold us accountable in that way. Um, so so that's, that's kind of how I look at it. And sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Yeah, so th- no, so no. That's, that's how I see it, Brandon. Well, and I was going to, so, and we have this local, I think every law enforcement agency in the country has this issue. And I would think that federal agencies probably do too. And um, it's basically about exchanging information with uh, other agencies or in the federal government, or other entities, say, say um, you guys exchange information with the DEA or ATF. I can, I can speak locally, just local law enforcement and not just where we work, but just in general, there is always for whatever idiotic reason been, been an issue with say the SO exchanging information, with the PD or the PDSO or, or to DPS, you know, our, our state agency. And, and I've heard, of course, I've never worked for federal agencies, but I've heard that it's just an issue in general between one federal agency to the another. Yeah. I can promise you through local law enforcement, it is. And the only people that suffer from that is the citizens and, and actually the investigators themselves, because it could potentially be dangerous to us to not be exchanging yeah. information and things like that. But it's always gets in some kind of contest to which agencies, you know, the better one or, or should share information. It always becomes real convoluted. Is that. So that, that has not been my experience in the work that I've done. Um, I have, throughout my career, it has almost always been in partnership with other agencies. And, and so, um, we can talk about that in a second, cause I'm, I am passionate yeah. about the FBI's use of task forces to conduct counterintelligence work, but something I would be real remiss not to highlight the fact that we are both a domestic law enforcement and intelligence agency. Yes, the taxpayers deserve it because we can be incredibly impactful in incredibly timely fashions. And we must be regulated and overseen rigorously. The country has seen fit through law to give us some of the most invasive tools and authorities you can imagine. And if we are not held to account, our history shows that there will be people and sometimes even whole parts of the organization that will abuse those authorities. In my reading of our history, it's never been abuse of authority for its own ends. Like it's not, hey, I want to just be a jackbooted thug. It's been because we were forced by circumstances to respond to new threats, threats that had never been experienced before, that there was no context for how we as a country should deal with them. 
and you guys have talked about cops as kind of the garbage men of society. I, I wouldn't go that far for the FBI, but we're definitely, hey, there is something that seems like really bad or even like existential threat to our society. FBI, you're responsible. Go figure out how to deal with it. Mm. And when you're operating under those conditions, we have shown time and again that we may go further than what the country in retrospect would have wanted us to do. Well, it sounds like on that note, like stuff like that does come up where, hey, there's a there's a new unprecedented threat. We're not familiar with it. It's a very uncharted territory, but a certain agency, in this case, the FBI, is being asked to tackle that problem, solve it. And then, yes, there is this uh, this element of, hey, problem was solved, um, perhaps not perfectly, but those things, would it be fair to say that those things are, are modified over time? Yeah. to like kind of um, be reined in, yes. so to speak. As, as we are held to account, we have absolutely course-corrected multiple times throughout our history. So one of the, the prominent examples was the mid-1970s when uh, both the House and the Senate conducted separate investigations of not only but FBI perceived and actual abuses of our counterintelligence authorities. The CIA was also a part of that, as was DOD intelligence. And wide-ranging reforms came out of that. And it was absolutely made clear to the FBI that investigating people on the basis of purely First Amendment-protected speech is not only unacceptable, it is illegal and shall not happen. And I will tell you that that is a watchword for myself as an FBI agent and every agent that I've worked with. And it's also something that we are consistently trained on and reminded of and admonished to, to respect. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other reforms that came out of, out of uh, the Pike and Church commissions, one of them being the FISA Act of, of 1978 to give the FBI needed authorities, but to force us to act under the rule of law, as opposed to this kind of ambiguous presidential executive authority that we had been under. Right. But, but this isn't just a matter of history. So I, I suspect all of your listeners, many people in this country are very aware of the crossfire hurricane investigation. Um, involving former President Trump. And there were issues there that were found by the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General. Congress has come out and said that there were issues with the way that we conducted that investigation. There's a report that DOJ issued in December of 2019. It's available for everybody to read. And I encourage people who are interested to do it it's called Crossfire Hurricane. I mean, search for Crossfire Hurricane 2019, and you'll find that report. And it is really a powerful statement of the ways that, that the FBI did not comport with law and with our own policies when it came to that particular investigation. And as such, the way that we draft and handle FISAs has been changed. It's the rigor 
that's applied to it is even greater than it had been. Um, and Director Ray has been very, you know, candid with the American people that he recognized our failures in that moment and has taken lots and lots of steps internally to do everything possible to ensure that it won't happen. Do you think those overreaches were with the best of intention because they're just trying to get an ultimate goal of getting this information or completing this investigation and maybe some tunnel vision was, was had and then they just uh, ended up doing a little bit of overreach of, of governmental power? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. And so I'm not going to speculate on that. What I can say with certainty is that the overreaches, the violations of law and policy that, that occurred in that investigation, we as an agency took that seriously. We have implemented reforms. And I, I'm, not, I'm not talking speculatively. I lived through that. I was, I was doing national security counterintelligence work throughout that whole period. And, you know, prior to that, here's how we were doing FISA's. And it comported with the rule of law for everything that I was experiencing and the people that I worked with. But then after that report was issued and Director Ray implemented the reforms, and now here are additional checks that have been put into the system to make sure that if somebody, for whatever reason, deviated from law and policy, that that would be identified early and stopped. And that's happened throughout history, not just crossfire hurricane but and i can't think of it back into the 90s and 80s there, there's always been situations where they've done that yeah. and, and essentially self-corrected i mean it was brought to people's attention maybe there was hearings on it but at least at least our government is saying hey we messed up here we a little bit too far here and then they make adjustments and changes in laws and procedures where that doesn't happen again and i understand that in a matter of years later maybe a different scenario happens where there's maybe more overreaches, but at least it's corrected. You know, yeah. in these other countries, they don't care. They're just, the government does what it wants to do. And here, at least, we're, no one's perfect. Our government's not perfect. We're not perfect. But at least they're trying to correct where mistakes were made or overreaches were made. They're trying to make it better. Each time they learn from each time something was done wrong, they learn from it and try to move forward and make it better next time. That 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 has absolutely been my experience in the FBI and it's continuing to this day for people who are paying attention. Congress is debating how how to reauthorize or if they're going to reauthorize what's called the FISA Act as amended from 2008, which gave us a particular tool called 702 authority. And that is simply the ability to conduct electronic surveillance of foreign nationals, part one, Outside the United States, part two, I will tell you in my own experience what Director Ray has already said in Congress. It is an essential tool for FBI national security investigations. And I've used that tool and my experience with it and the people that I've worked with has been exactly what taxpayers would expect, comports with the rule of law. And Congress has concerns about how we're using it, which is their rightful oversight role. And so we'll see how it comes out. But whatever it comes out as, the FBI will absolutely comply with that 
new or amended law if we have the ability to continue to use that authority moving forward. Right. And I know that we had discussed um, previously before we sat down to record and everything. Um, I think a good way to kind of illustrate this um, this method by which the FBI um, specifically, but really all law enforcement agencies um, kind of evolve and modify um, over time to uh, be able to be effective in what they do, but not have too much overreach. I think a good way to do that is to go through um, kind of some highlights and some some neat cases that the FBI has been involved in over time. Sure. Um, and so I want to get into a little bit of those um, as well. Um, but real quick, um, let's go ahead and take a break. Okay. And we'll we'll pick it back up with kind of getting into um, some of the history of of the FBI and the the cool. counterintelligence stuff. So yeah. All right, we'll take a break. All right, we're back from the break. Um, so where we left off, we're going to start getting into some of the history of the um, cool operations and, and just notable things um, in the FBI's history as a as a law enforcement and intelligence agency. Chris, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take it away. So I kind of I, I picked several um, you know operations and activities that that I thought all of them speak to the FBI as a domestic intelligence agency and the capabilities that we have and, and trying to be fair and honest and also to, to underscore the idea that we have to be held accountable for our actions. I, I picked some where it is absolutely clear that we got it wrong. And when I say we got it wrong, that means we violated the constitution that we potentially violated federal law in the pursuit of it, and that even those instances happened in a context. And that context is both historical, like, right, 1919s are way different than how we live and work and, and are in the 21st century. Norms change. But also the context of what was the threat we were responding to. So, so some of this is, is to underscore that idea of hold us to account, but then there's others where like, I am so proud of the way that my agency has thought about counterintelligence and used its intelligence capabilities to really advance us national security interests. And so I'll talk about, about some of those as well. And this is, generally uh, chronological in order, because um, to be honest, we were getting it wrong at the very start. Um, and and so the one that I, I, I kind of thought about as a good way to lead into this um, is what's called the Palmer Raids. And I never heard about this growing up. I don't know if you guys did in so, your history classes. I think I've like heard this before, but I, I have no idea. Like I couldn't tell you what it's about, Palmer Raids. So um, Palmer raids happen in uh, throughout 1919 and I think into kind of early 1920. And when we start talking about context, this is the immediate post-World War I environment. And one of the things that I think many people lose sight of 
communism didn't come onto the scene at the end of World War II. The Soviet Union was established in, really, it began in 1917 into 1918, and it was a, a, a true uh, nation state by, I think, like 1921. And there was a wave of communist um, kind of, of the spread of communism throughout much of Western Europe, like Germany almost went communist in the immediate post-World War I environment. And, and so that was a concern of the entire U.S. government at the time, the immediate post-World War I environment. And so Palmer of the Palmer Raids was the attorney general at the time. And so what was going on, and it's, it's wild to think about this um, because we're, we're all kind of, you know, we pay attention to what's, what's going on in our lives and immediately in front of us. In this post-World War I environment, there was a substantial wave of bombings happening all across the United States that we believed were being done by both communist and uh, anarchist groups. There was relatively little loss of life as I remember it, but even the attorney general, Palmer, his house was targeted. And if I remember right, I think it was his maid who actually opened the package because it was a, it was a, you know, it was a package bomb, a letter bomb. And she, she got severely injured, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Um, so the Department of Justice, especially once the attorney general <laughs> is targeted directly, like they took an interest. Okay, we got a problem. We got bombings that are going on across the country, and we think the communists and the anarchists are behind it. So what tools do we have to address this threat? Well, we didn't even have the FBI at that point. This was before the FBI began was the FBI. We had the Bureau of Investigation, which was the immediate predecessor. And we had DOJ's uh, General Intelligence Division, uh, which was under the directorship of J. Edgar Hoover at the time. And so Palmer charges Hoover and the Bureau of Investigation to figure out who are these anarchists and communists who are doing these bombings. So already that's some pressure. It's a tall order. And that pressure is further exacerbated after the kind of the first round of, of uh, raids that Hoover and the Bureau of Investigation do in like April and June of 1919, because Palmer then has to go to Congress and explain what he's doing. And Congress's position is, hey, Attorney General, you must stop this activity. So us as an intelligence agency, what who under kind of Hoover's direction, and I may speak more broadly than I should, but we'll we'll kind of lump this all under uh, J. Edgar Hoover at the time, um, begins to build index cards identifying I think it was like 60,000 suspected communists and 
anarchists. And again, today we would say communist belief, anarchic beliefs, First Amendment protected speech. But when we put it into its context, we're saying we are seeing major countries across Europe fall to communism, radical changes in their political structure driven by relatively small groups of people, and we're concerned that that's going to be replicated here. So the view is not necessarily a First Amendment protected speech, but foreign directed intelligence and political um, influence trying to change U.S. political structures, right? Doesn't make it right, but it puts it in its context and history. And so these 60,000 people that Hoover is collecting intelligence on to build these index cards so we know where all of these people are, that's all intelligence-driven, right? Unfortunately, and to our discredit as an agency, it appears in the historical record that those 60,000 people, like largely what we did is we said communism and anarchism come from Southern and Eastern Europe, as well as the Soviet Union. And so recent immigrants from those places they're going on to those index cards and we're going to keep an eye on them and we're going to take action against them. I see. Okay. So they're kind of getting just lumped in um, based on, I guess it would be a reasonable suspicion, but nothing more. No, I I wouldn't even articulate reasonable suspicion. And, And that's one of the reasons why this is bad. Like this is a colossal waste of resources in addition to being what is, I, I, I would describe it as like we're operating under a general warrant as opposed to a specific warrant that we have articulated to a judge. We're saying a whole class of people. Well, what just, got them on the list? Uh, just just because they were foreign it, nationals? That And from these specific areas, like that was that was the baseline. Now, there could be more to go on top of that. But as I understand it, simply being immigrants from... Italy, from Eastern Europe, that was potentially enough to get you onto those index cards. How was it tracked at that time back in that day? Because there, of course, no computers or anything. It was just, did, I mean, is there some paperwork they yeah. filled out when they initially got here and it was kept by the government? Or? Oh, yeah, I, I would imagine so, Brandon, that it's coming from what was then the Immigration and Naturalization Service. But yeah, it was all paper-based records. And so, so one of the things about Hoover is you think about him as a manager, as as kind of an executive. He came to the Department of Justice with a background as a librarian. So it's a fascinating part of his history. So organization of information was something that he was incredibly skilled at, in my understanding. Um, And that's the idea behind these index cards. It was no different than old school libraries when you would go and you would pull out the drawer and you'd flip through everything and you'd say, oh, my book is under the Dewey, you know, decimal system. It's whatever that code is. So I go find it in that index, uh, you know, box. And now I know where to go look for for the book that I want to read. That's the approach that he brought to this. 
So in this case, it wasn't the simple acquisition of intelligence information. It was also organizing it so that it could be used. And that's something I think a lot of people outside outside of kind of the practitioners of intelligence don't understand. You don't gather intelligence for the sake of. You do something with it. And that's a message I think every law enforcement professional understands, right? Oh, yeah. Like, we're not collecting on the banditos or whatever, you know, the meth gang, the mm -hmm. heroin dealer. We're not collecting information for the sake of. We intend to do something with it. Correct. It's just, what is that thing we're going to do? And by God, it's going to be within the structure of the rule of law. Like, you know, we're not going to mm -hmm. use it outside of that context. The intelligence National security intelligence is is the same. So in this case, going back to the Palmer raids, like the innovation I think that Hoover brought was organizing that intelligence in a way that it could be actioned. And boy, Hart, you know, did it get actioned? He, there was just these massive raids throughout the 1919s into the early 20s and into early 1920. Um, I think at the end of the day, it was like over 10,000 people were arrested, 3,500 were detained for an extensive period of time, 556 resident aliens were eventually deported, but of that initial 10,000 who were arrested, 2,000 of the warrants were canceled because, in this case, it was a strange story, but Department of Labor was the authorities that we were operating under at the time. They were able to, they had legal authority to have um, resident aliens deported for a variety of reasons. And the Department of Labor looked at what the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Investigation did and said, holy cats, this is crazy illegal stuff. So out of all of these arrests that you have made, it's only this very small number of people who had any probable cause that would warrant them being deported. But what I think is worth noting, um, like coverage of the event at the time, it was generally positive. Um, so Palmer himself thought that he was doing a necessary thing in line with the Constitution to address this threat of communist and, and, and anarchic terrorist activities seeking to disrupt and change our political system. So there was a particular U.S. attorney, I think it was in Pennsylvania, who ob not only objected to the raids, but resigned as a result of it. Like that's, you know, hmm. standing up for your convictions. Right. And Palmer said to that guy that, individual arrests. And again, remember, I, I mean, you guys know this, for those who aren't law enforcement professionals, we don't do general arrests. That is illegal. You must have specific probable oh, yeah. cause for a person to deprive them of their liberty. Yep. That is 100%. So Palmer is saying he couldn't use individual arrests to combat this problem. So he had to use this mass arrest approach. And he said he couldn't use individual arrest to treat an epidemic. And then he asserted 
that he was living up to the Constitution. And he added, while the government should encourage free political thinking and, and political action, it has the right for its own preservation to discourage and prevent the use of force and violence to accomplish that which ought to be accomplished, if at all, by legislative action or other political means. And the Washington Post at the time endorsed Palmer and said this is no time to waste on hair splitting over the infringement of liberty. And so, you know, we're talking about context. Like, where else do we see this existential threat happens, massive resources get applied to try and address the problem? We see it in 9-11? For mm -hmm. sure. Patriot Act. Yeah. Do we see it in the Cold War? For sure. And and I'm not saying that those are the same thing as this. What's the same is there is a perceived existential threat. The Bureau, as an intelligence agency, uses its authority to gather in intelligence information about what are perceived to be foreign threats, and we respond. And we're ultimately held accountable because the good news out of this clearly gross overstep on our part, the ACLU gets founded in part in response to the Palmer raids, but more importantly, we get rebuked by the judicial branch. So there is a, a judge who stands up and says at the end of the Palmer raids, after kind of it all settles out, a mob is a mob, whether made up of government officials acting on in instructions from the Department of Justice or of criminals and, great word, loafers and the vicious classes. That judicial rebuke, the Bureau heard it. DOJ heard it. The raids stopped hmm. in large part because of that and because the Department of Labor stood up and said, Department of Justice, you're abusing our authorities. I see. Wow. It's hard for it's hard to conceptualize something of that nature happening today. Like just the idea of a, like a, like mass like kind of general arrest warrant. Like right. that's I don't know, like it, at least in, in my short time as a as a cop so far, like that's unprecedented for me. Um, yeah, no, but I, I see what he's saying with the Cold War and then nine yeah, eleven. I yeah. mean it, it wasn't Exactly like that, but there was, you know, some infringements. I sure. Say. At, at the very least, there was pressure from the government itself, like the legislative branch, from within the executive branch, and from the public. Hey, this is a foreign threat to our way of life. FBI, address it. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to my point of we have the tools and authorities. And I think that we best serve the taxpayers because we can both collect intelligence and do criminal investigations. And you must hold us accountable because it is not impossible. Our history shows us that we can overstep our bounds. And the corrective for that is rigorous oversight. And it can't just be in my opinion, looking back at this historically, it has to be taxpayers as well, because ultimately, you know, our our 
political representation is at the consent of us as taxpayers. So we have to be part of the solution when we see this kind of government overreach. Well, I, it was for, yeah. at least at the beginning, for good intentions. Now, maybe perhaps some people got a hold of it and, and went in for other reasons, but generally speaking, good intentions. Hey, let's root out terrorists. Talking about yeah. 9-11. Hey, uh, yeah. let's root out communists that want to take over the United States and beat us in a war. Yeah. that it okay. That's all yeah. good intentions, but we still have to act properly in the way that we deal with that. And then maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves. I don't know. People just maybe they got too power hungry. I don't probably a, a combination of a lot of things went on to, to reach that end goal, but Hey, you don't want to do anything wrong or violate people's rights or get the wrong people and become a country you're fighting against to become, become that country yourself and trying to uh, reach a goal. And it, yeah. Amen. And it also speaks to how norms change over time. Brandon, to your point, like this, this ain't happening today because right, yeah. our laws have developed the way that we as citizens think about our rights has changed. We as law enforcement professionals, the account that we're held to, but this was a different time and people expected yeah. and accepted different things from, from us as law enforcement and from the government in well, general. And I could see, I, I could see, so I, I've thought a little bit about this. I, I was able to go to a, a uh, training school um, for my job recently that involved, um, this is going to sound unrelated, but it'll, it'll tie back in, I promise. But, but it involved um, kind of some of the current, criminal and legal issues with artificial intelligence mm. i can see artificial intelligence becoming kind of a new um previously unprecedented problem and i think that we're likely going to see a bunch of law enforcement response to dealing with ai related cr criminal activity and i think that a lot of things are going to come out of that where it may get a little out of control for a little bit and eventually i could see us having to rein that back in and it's kind of interesting to think about something potential like that in the future and try and um, see the parallels with stuff that's already happened where um, I just think we're going to see we're going to see it modify and evolve. Well, yeah, I understand goes. that because AI could be and I mean, it's a very scary thing with what it could do to society. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of positive things that can come from it, say, because they're saying there's some some like uh, medical things with the heart and whatnot that AI can can do to to yeah. predict things that you would never even know that was going to happen to you and it could, could potentially get them fixed. So that's a very positive AI thing, but a negative one would be, well, there's just a, a whole, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of negative things that could come from it. So where is that balance? It's just like anything else, what we're talking about, you have to find the balance in that and hope, and you really got to hope that that power is in good hands, good moral hands where they don't right. pervert it and use it for their own means. Mm -hmm. Even if it's yeah. a country using it for its own means, we want to just yeah. We we need to use it for the best of people and, and just like the medical th part of it, but we don't want to use it to control a government or to push out false fake messages that we can't tell if it's real or not because it's it's AI. So well, it's a well, it's it's a, it's going to be a very difficult thing to navigate. I think. Yeah, and I think I think with the AI thing, mistakes will be made um, with good intentions, trying to to help regulate that stuff and and all that. But just like with the the Palmer raids, you know, mistakes were made. Um, but it sounds like at the time, they were made with good intentions, and they maybe even had public support at the right. time. That so so there's 
there's two things. Um, one, kind of Brandon, we were talking off the air about the genius of the founders and the way that they that they laid the foundation for this country. And and yes, we absolutely want and expect our government public servants, that's people like me, that's people like you, to be moral and to follow the rule of law. But the founders were genius in saying we cannot trust any one person all the time to do what is understood to be right by all under the rule of law. And so we're going to put checks and balances in there. And the ultimate check check and balance, in my own opinion, it's us as taxpayers saying, here's what we will and won't accept from our government. Um, Oh, boy. Oh, and then the other thing, it it ties in with what you're what you're saying hunter in its context the bureau of investigation the department of justice in the palmer raids they weren't doing this for their own sake they were doing it because there was a perceived foreign terrorist and foreign intelligence threat that they were told had yep. to be stopped oh yeah doesn't make what they did right cuz it wasn't it mm-hmm. just puts it into a context that I, I think yeah. can help people understand it. Yeah, and like you said, it doesn't make it right, and it doesn't mean that you have to to even agree with what they did yeah. in the past, but you definitely understand it. Like You definitely understand why they did that, and I don't think it was totally malicious at the time. But yeah, that's, no, they were that's trying to solve a problem. Yeah. It was just that <laughs> yeah. in solving that problem, they I guess, essentially created a lot of other problems and violations and kind of went against what the United States really stands for ironically and trying to keep it from becoming that yeah that's I mean, right it, that's yeah. right yeah honestly um yeah this is this is a bit of a tangent but there's the a great book that i read we were talking alternate history kind of post-apocalyptic fiction stuff <laughs> yeah. um i think it was called it was either called man of steel or it was called joe stalin or somebody something like that and it was written by this great alternative history fiction writer named harry turtle dove and it's totally ridiculous but what he imagines is that instead of joseph stalin being um raised in uh the russian empire and rising to lead the soviet union at some point, his family immigrates to the United States, and and he starts this whole fictional chain rolling, where you know Joe Stalin becomes, I think, president of the United States, and Hoover is his director of the FBI, but now instead of a Hoover who is constrained to some, you know, to some extent, um, you know, basically Hoover is able to eventually establish a police state and take over the country. And and I forget how I got down this tangent other than like, that's, that's the ultimate absurd example of what yeah. happens when your law enforcement organizations, whether it's the FBI or state or local entities aren't subject fully to the control and consent of the people. Not just the government, but yeah, the people. Yeah. Well, it's that it's that healthy balance between freedom and security, where you could have someone come in and say, "Hey, we're going to have this super overreaching, powerful police force all over the nation," and 
we're going to do it under the guise of security and everything's going to be safe and everything's going to be great at the cost of your freedoms right and all well, that and well that's can you imagine what we could do where we work if we could just go because we know a lot of the drug dealers we know oh yeah uh at least some of the people that have fentanyl which has killed people in local community mm-hmm. well, if we could just kick the door in and go get them like they do on tv yeah we could put a huge dent in the narcotic trafficking in our community yeah you could stop all of that and, and probably will definitely save lives but at the same time mm-hmm we're not America anymore when we're doing that because we just trampled all over the Constitution and people's yeah. rights and all of that. And I get that it's some dope dealer that, that's selling poison that kills people, but at the same time, they have the same expectations of privacy and protection as everybody in this room does. And, yeah. and you mm-hmm. don't want to trample on that because at that point, you've lost your country and everything yeah. the United States stands well, for. Well, at what point does that stop? You know, like right. hey, well, we, we trampled on this guy's rights because he was a dope dealer. Well, that starts to get into sketchy territory of like, oh, well, we can do it to this person because of this. And well, yeah, we and then all of a sudden now we're I don't agree with this person politically, so I'm going to do that to him. I <laughs> yeah. mean, where does and it then it begin? You've come, it's you've a become a, a socialist, you know, a overreaching country. Yeah, yeah, but no, uh, I think it, so. I wasn't really familiar with the Palmer raids. I mean, more now that you talked about it, but that's yeah, that's a, a super interesting point in history. So the next one that that I was kind of thinking about, and it. This is one where I think we got it right. And and again, as I think back to, you know, eighth grade history class, not not something I was really aware of. So the you know, the Nazis, the Germans in World War II conducted one sabotage mission in the United States. So they they sent in 1942 eight total agents from their military intelligence organization called the Abwehr to, they dispatched them to the United States. They sent four to land from a submarine in Long Island, and then another four to land from a submarine in Jacksonville, uh, Florida. And all eight of these guys had lived in the United States for some period of time, were familiar with our culture and spoke and spoke English fluently. Um, and their mission uh, was, let me see, um, they were directed to attack energy production, transportation, uh, chemical plants, and to conduct terror attacks against Jewish businesses. They had a substantial amount of money behind them, like they landed with money, weapons, explosives. And the whole idea was, you know, move into the United States from that initial landing point and and then find your targets and go after them. And kind of the common thread that that I'm thinking about, once again, this is a completely new threat that the U.S. had never considered. Prior to World War II, like we, we rightfully saw the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans as these physical barriers that would prevent invasion from foreign powers. So... How do we learn about these Nazi saboteurs? Well, thank God it wasn't because they blew stuff up and killed people. So the four guys that landed in Long Island, they got, they got messed up from the very beginning. And because they got messed up from the very beginning, and I'll explain it in just a second, there are some people who will look at this as not an FBI success. They got screwed up because where they landed in Long Island, there happened to be a Coast Guardsman on patrol 
who saw them hmm. and challenged them. Now, he realized, because he saw the guns and some of the other equipment, he realized he was dealing with bad folks. And he's like, he got out of the situation. He de-escalated and let him go, but then promptly reported it through his chain of command to the FBI. Um, and some people say, well, the FBI didn't do anything. You know, it was the Coast Guard that found it. But what I look at is this. So after that initial, like, you know, problem in the operation, two of the four guys that landed in Long Island they looked at each other and they said, this is messed up, man. What are we doing trying to conduct these attacks in the United States? We need to turn ourselves into the FBI, tell them everything that we know, and let the FBI catch everybody else. And that's what they did. So, so how is that an intelligence agency activity? The reality, and again, you go read about any of this. Folks who defect from foreign intelligence agencies to U.S. intelligence agencies are often the most valuable sources of human intelligence that the U.S. government can get. We have to be, as an intelligence agency, first and foremost, a defector has to view us as credible I'm not going to go to the FBI if I'm a defector and say, FBI, A, protect me, and B, here's everything that I know so you can stop bad stuff from happening. If I don't think that the FBI is capable of doing what I expect them to do. And that was the case here. They deliberately picked the FBI. There wasn't any CIA at the time or, or even really, there was DOD, well, it was War Department and Naval Department intelligence. But they said the FBI is the place to go. So that's great. We get a person who voluntarily provides us with critical intelligence information. And that's not just, again, it's making it broadly applicable. Like, I'm pretty sure that happens with local law enforcement investigations as well. Oh, yeah. That people see you and they tell you, Here's the bad stuff that's happening that I know about, right? Mm -hmm. So part of it's credibility. But then the second part is the professionalism, the competence, and the dedication of the special agents at the time who, who then took that intelligence information and acted on it. Again, we're talking 1942. You know, there's radio, yes. There's even teletype, I think. There's no computers. There's no internet. There's no ability to conduct, to really locate people easily. So the two guys who didn't defect out of the Long Island crew and the four guys who did defect or who didn't defect from Jacksonville, they've moved in kind of all over the Eastern United States. And I may, I may have that wrong. The two up in Long Island, we may have got them pretty quickly in, in New York city, but the four from Jacksonville had moved into the interior of the United States FBI special agents had to track those guys down using very traditional investigative techniques, talking to people, putting yep. out bolos. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yep. And we did. All eight Nazi saboteurs were eventually captured. Six of them were 
sentenced by military tribunal to execution and were in fact executed immediately following the war, if I remember correctly. Wow. The two who defected were also uh, convicted and and sentenced to death, but that was they it wasn't pardon pardoned. They were commuted and then they were deported back to Germany. Okay. And what's interesting to me is at the time, Hoover elected to not share this success story with the American people. And that's choices that intelligence agencies make all the time for a variety of very good reasons. In this case, the historical record seems to be in question of why Hoover made the decision. There's a school of thought that he didn't want to publicize this for precisely the reason that people would view it as not an FBI success because somebody gave us the information rather than we went out and got it, right? So that's one view. Plausible. The other view, which is equally plausible to me, is Hoover didn't want the Nazi government to know how we rounded up their saboteurs. Because if there was doubt, well, then maybe they wouldn't send anybody else. That would make sense. Yeah. I can almost see it being a little bit of both from both those schools of thought. It very well could be. Whatever it was, the reality, no other Nazi saboteur groups were sent to the United States through the rest of the war. There was one other intelligence gathering mission that was sent in 1944, and that was two dudes. Um, but again, one of them, as soon as he gets to the United States, says, God, this is nuts. And he defects. He turns himself into the FBI. And in that case, I don't remember what the outcome was. I don't think that I don't think either of those guys were executed, but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but but here it's the credibility of the FBI that encourages foreign intelligence officers to depart from their mission parameters and say, this is not right what we're being asked to do. Let's go tell the FBI about it because we know that they have the authorities and the credibility to take action on what we tell them. That makes sense. And yeah, and I think too, so the idea of like um, criticism being drawn from, oh, hey, the FBI didn't go out and find this, but it, you know, was given to them or they, they picked it up or this guy just turned himself in essentially. That's still remarkable because I think that you almost get into like a different idea of like, well, if the FBI or any law enforcement agency for that matter was really going to go out and be able to catch everything organically on our own and everything, we it would require law enforcement to invade privacy at an astronomical level, yeah. which no one wants. And so like really some of the best cases, even at like our local level, the best cases often come from someone who gives us some information, someone who yeah. reports the problem. And well, says, you still hey, have to work on it. You still have oh, to yeah, work yeah. on that information. You'd be given something if you just put it on your desk <laughs> yeah. and never look at it again. Well, you've never done anything, but if you take it mm -hmm. and aren't lazy and, hey, I got to look at this, that this could be something. It that, still that's takes doing work. work. Yeah, yeah, that's doing work. Well, so. someone will, will come up and say, hey, um, you know, I, I think that this person is uh, abusing kids. Well, okay, why? And you start that investigation and maybe something really positive comes out of it. Um, and then maybe it's nothing. But 
yeah, the idea that um that that's somehow a slide of like, oh, you know, the the FBI didn't go out and get it them themselves, so it's somehow, you know, not all that great. I think it's kind of silly. Like, yeah, being given information and then taking it and working it is is extremely remarkable. And to have that outcome where every single yeah. one of these agents was captured and and addressed, that's extremely remarkable. And and again, what we're seeing here is the power of the FBI to be impactful protecting U.S. national security precisely because we operate as both an intelligence agency domestically as well as a law enforcement agency. What what would that have looked like if we had to take the intelligence that we, well, one, would a defector even have thought of us as credible if we never could take action? I don't know. But even if they did, like, then we have to take what they, what we were told and somehow figure out how to protect our sources and methods and transfer this to a purely law enforcement organization. If nothing else, we've added time to the problem. And in this case, like counter sabotage, and I'll, I'll talk about this at some point, that is a core counterintelligence function. It's not just the protection of information. It's the protection of property and kind of industrial capacity from foreign intelligence actors. Um, that's that's a defined mission for the FBI, I, and I I lost my train of thought. Sorry, but but regardless, if we didn't have that that dual nature, I, like now we're talking maybe weeks or months to prevent sabotage from happening, which means well, sure, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Property will be lost, capacity will be lost, lives will be lost, and in this great case. None of that happened because the FBI could both take in intelligence mm-hmm. and then act on it in a timely fashion. Well, I think right. the, do you think they would have different mindsets if they were split like that in different agencies? Because your intel uh, might have one mindset where your uh, LE side, for lack of a better term, would have a different mindset because they have different goals. But once you combine those goals together, I think that it you're going to have uh, the same mindset would probably make make it easier to do the job. So, I mean, I, I do, and I, I do think that's the case in that, you know, every FBI agent, myself and those that I've worked with and those that I know, like this idea that we don't collect intelligence for its own sake, we collect intelligence to do something with it, whether that something happens in a court of law or whether that something happens kind of in the classified world of foreign policy and relations between countries, that's a tactical or strategic decision that we make with our supervisors and as an agency. But it's always that mindset of we don't gather for the sake of, we gather so that we can do something to either protect national security or detect and prevent or detect and you know, then ultimately punish criminal activity. Right. So one of the things that I'm, I meant to talk about, and I'll try not to be too much of a geek here, but <laughs> again, getting across the idea that there is an established framework for the work that not just the FBI, but the entire intelligence community does. So, and, and it also gets us into some, some definition of terms. So President Reagan in 1981 signed an executive order 
called EO Executive Order 12333. And what 12333 did was it firmly set out the rules of, of the road for what everybody in the U.S. intelligence community could do, what they were lawfully authorized to do. And that executive order, despite being 42 years old, is still in effect. It's been amended several occasions to include um, in the kind of Patriot Act immediate post 9-11 world. Um, so what it defines for us is what we call foreign intelligence. And that when the U.S. government talks about intelligence agencies, they are talking about foreign intelligence information. And again, anybody can go out, they can Google EO-12333, you can read what I'm about to say. Um, intelli intelligence information is activities, capabilities, plans, intentions, uh, basically of foreign powers, which is essential to informed national level decision making for national security, national defense, and foreign relations, which is great. And that that foreign intelligence information has to be gathered in a manner consistent with the Constitution, applicable law, and respectful of the principles of the United upon which the United States was founded. So just setting the basic groundwork there. Collection within the United States of foreign intelligence not otherwise obtainable shall be undertaken by the FBI or when significant foreign intelligence is sought by other authorized parts of the intelligence community, um, the FBI can also be involved. So if us under our own authorities are the only people that can collect it, we must collect it. The president told us to, and no president since has told us to stop. Okay. The president also told us that we have to help the intelligence community through our authorities, if they are authorized to ask for our help. So it goes on to say that the director of the FBI will coordinate clandestine, so non-attributional, non-declared, we don't stand up in front of the American people and say we did it. We don't stand up in front of anybody and say that we did it outside of classified components of the U.S. government. So the director of the FBI shall coordinate the clandestine collection of foreign intelligence through human sources or through human-enabled means and counterintelligence activities inside the United States. So again, the FBI is being told directly when it comes to the domestic arena, we have a critical role in the collection of intelligence. A couple other definitions. Um, counterintelligence means information gathered and activities conducted to identify, deceive, exploit, disrupt, or protect against espionage, spying to collect our classified secrets, other intelligence activities, and we'll get into this at some point when we talk transnational repression, that's an intelligence activity. Sabotage, or assassinations conducted for or on behalf of foreign powers, organizations, etc., to include international terrorist organizations. That's a huge arena just for counterintelligence that the FBI is responsible for. 
This is just purely for definition because we've talked a lot about electronic surveillance for people who are not law enforcement practitioners. In EO 12333, electronic surveillance is defined as acquisition of non-public communication by electronic means without the consent of a person who is party to that communication. So we don't tell them and we don't ask them mm -hmm. because we're operating under court order as the FISA Act directs us to, or in the case of non-electronic communication without the consent of a person who is who is visibly present where that communication is happening. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of have to let people think about how that would be implemented, but that's what we're directed that we must be able to implement with our electronic surveillance. Um, let's see. Oh, and then I think one other thing that's worth highlighting. So EO 12333 tells us um, intelligence information includes both foreign intelligence and counterintelligence information. So again, when we're talking about the Bureau as an intelligence agency, it is not simply the collection of foreign intelligence information. It is also because of the counterintelligence information we collect through that mission. So again, sorry for the geeky kind of, uh, <laughs> um, you know, kind of layout there, but that's, that's a key component of how and why we are authorized to do the work that we do. Um, well, it may so, be, so there you go. Yeah. It, I mean, it may be geeky or whatever, but no, I think it's whenever you break it down like that and include all of those things like individually, that really puts it in perspective to like how big this umbrella is like, Hey, all of these things are, are, FBI responsibility. So that, that ends up being like a tremendously large task, a huge mission. And how, that, uh, how do those uh, directives compare to, say, Homeland Security or CIA? Because I'm not, I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with exactly the, the duties of those. I, I'm sure you don't know the specific, maybe everything that their, their charter says, if you will, but how does that compare to, to other federal agencies? Yeah. So, so EO 12333 does define it. And it has been amended to include the Department of Homeland Security and all of the military intelligence agencies that exist. And and so the, the short answer to your question, Brandon, is while many agencies have counterintelligence authorities and responsibilities, the FBI is the lead counterintelligence agency of the federal government. And is not constrained by certain functional areas. So, and, and, and I may be misstating things, so I hope my, my DOD CI counterparts will forgive me, but my general understanding is if DOD is executing their CI mission, it has to have a, some kind of nexus back to a DOD equity. Mm -hmm. The FBI does not require that. The FBI is the lead counterintelligence agency for the U.S. government. So our AOR is, you know, anything that impacts U.S. government equities where we see foreign intelligence activity targeting it. Okay. And just for the audience, um, 
AOR is oh area of responsibility. Yes. Just okay, the yeah. the place where we can operate. I see. That's super interesting. But yeah, large umbrella. Um, and this will get. I know. Um, there's a, a couple more things that I want to talk about in like notable FBI history. Yeah. But this is going to lead into, I think, some of the um, partnerships with other agencies that the FBI does and the the task forces and things like that, which we'll get into. Um, I, I kind of after we wrap up the history, but that's uh breaking it breaking it down like you did is very eye opening to see what all's involved in that. And and so one of the reasons I wanted to to take the time to go through EO twelve triple three does go to the next kind of historical event because in in my view it's it is it is a troubling abuse of fbi power and authorities it happened within a context and if we had pursued it differently would have been to our great credit and i'll explain what i mean so the fbi conducted an activity called cointel pro and you'll hear it pronounced differently depending on who you're talking to. I always heard it called COIN, like a COIN, TELPRO. It's an abbreviation for Counterintelligence Program. And this was an activity that we conducted from the 1950s into the early 1970s. And ultimately, it's what got us the Church and Pike Commissions that we talked about earlier. So there is no question it was both illegal and also a foolish, foolish use of FBI resources. What we did was we were directing essentially what, what I would see as covert activity. And covert activity is, is defined in EO 12333, and, and I just tossed those papers where I had the definition. So... Um, <laughs> Essentially, covert activity has different applications, but it includes kind of misleading, deceiving, disrupting um, foreign powers and their intelligence agencies while hiding the hand of the U.S. government. Okay. EO-12333 says, CIA, you can do that with presidential authority. Uh, that's your mission, and it is explicitly an outside the United States mission. EO-12333 does say in time of war, DOD can do it, or other agencies as authorized by the president can do it. This is all kind of context and background for what the FBI was trying to do, as I look back at the history, was it was trying to disrupt the Communist Party of the United States of America. That was its focal point initially. And what we don't understand necessarily in 2023 was that in the 1940s, 1950s, maybe the 1930s, the CPUSA, Communist Party of the United States of America, was funded to the tune of like $30 million by the Soviet Union. Mm. If that's not an agent of a foreign power acting as such in the United States, I don't know what is. And what would that thirty million be in today's money? I mean, yeah, right. Know, it would people be, listen to thirty yeah. million. Well, it's thirty million was worth a lot more back right. then, so it's a, it's a huge investment. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's how it started, and I think good thinking people could argue 
whether using our authorities to deceive, disrupt, manipulate the CPUSA was appropriate, whether it was legal or not. But over the course of those two decades, really, the 50s into the early 70s, the focus expanded and we started talking, we started targeting student radical groups. But the idea was maybe in some way, shape or form, these are also used or manipulated or funded by the Soviets to disrupt our way of life. We used it against the KKK. Again, Good thinking people could probably argue whether that was appropriate and right, but certainly wasn't legal. And then black militant groups. And this is one of those you will hear uh, truthful historical stories about the FBI targeting. Um, oh, my gosh. Brain just completely wiped. Martin Luther King Jr. And at one point in time, there is a historical fact out there that the FBI sent uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. a letter that said, hey, man, we know about your extramarital affairs hmm. and you need to stop what you're doing. You need to stop your activism or else you're going to get in trouble. Now, what doesn't always get told, that that letter came from electronic surveillance that we were directing against Martin Luther King Jr. That letter was crafted. It wasn't on FBI letterhead. It was designed to look like it was from people within Martin Luther King Jr.'s orbit who were trying to influence him. That's a it, very interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah, that, that's yeah. A, so. Did you did um, you know that? I've actually seen this letter um, a, a few years ago. Ashley took me to the uh, the um, Civil Rights Museum over in um, Memphis, and I think I believe I don't know if it's the original or if it's a copy, but um, they have yeah. at least a copy of that letter there, and they they talk about that. Yeah. So the part of the story that's not often told is that at least initially wasn't to stop MLK from advocating for civil rights. That whole activity resulted or started because we identified a person within MLK's orbit who we believed was operating as an agent of the Communist Party of the United States of America and who we thought had more influence on Martin Luther King Jr. than he actually did. Interesting. So, again, I'm not defending this. This was wrong. This was illegal, and it had a context within which it occurred. So I talked about it, I think about it as covert action, because we're attempting to, we were attempting at that time to use disinformation or true information to manipulate U.S. persons and U.S. public opinion and U.S. political activities. I guess this would be an advisor to him or somebody they felt had influence, That's and then right. they could potentially influence him into thinking of some kind of communist-type leanings, and, and then he had a huge fear of influence in the U.S., and so therefore he'd influence more people, and yeah. that's what they're afraid of. Yeah, for sure. So, so that, to me, meets all the kind of parameters of covert action. 
except for the part where covert action explicitly cannot be that thing and can only be used outside the United States, right? I see. And and even though this all happened before EO-12333 was written, if we go back to the idea that the Bureau thought it could do these otherwise illegal things because it was the national security realm and the president could authorize it under his under his constitutional authorities we never got the president's authority to do this we never got the attorney general's authority to do it hoover did brief it to very specific parts of congress and to the president and i think to the ag but he talked about it in very vague kind of high level terms not getting into the specifics of it Can at I, all. How, how effective do you guys, or, or does history show that it was as far as that letter? Because it's a very, and you guys may know the story, it was very interesting to me. Obviously, he didn't quit, but what was his reaction to that, or, or do we know? Um, I, I don't remember the particulars of it. Yeah, so uh, I would definitely not be qualified to speak on it. I, I went to a museum and read about it, but... um. So it's a fascinating I, story, too, I just because I didn't know yeah. that part, and that, that's it's just super yeah, interesting. Well, and, I guess my inference would be just knowing kind of how some of the rest of that story played out. Um, he didn't stop, you know. He was right. continuing his his activism and everything up until he was assassinated. It's it's also which well, is the rabbit trail, which we won't go down too far. But it's also very interesting how a lot of powerful people have uh, been ruined or found themselves in in bad situations by that type of behavior, as far as extramarital <laughs> affairs, or or you know yeah. women getting them into things. It's people that. I mean, MLK had great, I mean, his, his goals were great and very noble and all of that. And yet he had this, this thing that could have potentially taken him down. And that's the, you mm -hmm. find a lot of people yeah. like that, that, uh, get themselves in the same situation. Well, and, yeah. and ultimately like, that's just the perfect example of why this is such a gross abuse of our power and our authorities. Cause what any American does in their personal life that doesn't violate the law should not be a matter of our interest or concern at all. And the fact that we did that, yeah, like the point that, that I make to anybody I talk to, I can understand why, especially in a Cold War world, Hoover perceives the CPUSA and the Soviets as an existential threat. And he feels like anything that can be done to protect America from that threat is warranted. I can understand it. And there is absolutely no clause in the Constitution that says the director of the FBI is authorized to violate the Constitution because he thinks it's expedient to address a perceived existential threat. Right, yeah. And that all goes back to, man, we've got to be... You want us to have the powers and authorities that we do, and you must keep us accountable. And there's you know, lots of reasons and lots of speculation as you look at history for why Hoover was able to do this. And a lot of people point to he had official and confidential, but he also had personal and confidential files. It's all fascinating. He took deliberate steps to take some amount of FBI intelligence information, which seemed to be related to domestic political persons and issues. He kept it out of public view, like he kept it off the public record. 
And there's some people who speculate, and there's some people who just say flat out that he was using that explicitly and, and implicitly to either bribe or extort U.S. political figures to do things not for Hoover's personal advantage, which is what's interesting, at least to me, but to allow the FBI to continue to be effective in the way that he thought it should be effective, regardless of whether there was a basis in law for the FBI to do what he wanted it to do. And we talked about a little of that earlier with electronic surveillance not even being legal until 68 and all that. I was going to say, just think if that would have been effective, if MLK would have yielded to that threat because he wanted to save his marriage or whatever, what would have happened to the civil rights movement at that point? I mean, it literally could have affected civil rights in the United States by because of a threatening letter the FBI sent out, and he stops his civil rights. And that wasn't their goal, let's be clear. That wasn't their – well, yeah. it wasn't to affect the civil rights movement, but it was just – it's to stop communism. It's to stop communism. But what if he would have thought, "Oh, I can't, you know, I can't have this drama come out," and he would have stopped doing that? Right. Yeah. Where would we be at in civil? I mean, it would have pushed it back. Probably. Who knows what would have happened? I mean, yeah, super damaged, damaging to the country. It would have been. Amen. Yeah. So one of the other like contextual things about Cointel Pro, it was never designed to result in criminal prosecution. And I, I mentioned at the start of it, like my thought on how if it had been designed differently, it could have been a real moment of of pride for the FBI and how we exercised our mission. Instead of looking at the CPUSA and then allowing that to to become malignant and looking at all these other groups, if we had concentrated this kind of disinformation efforts against the Soviets, that would have been beautiful because I'll tell you the Soviets and now the Russians, they are expert at this very activity, which they call active measures. And again, this is all stuff that you can read about. It's well-documented. Soviets have been, <laughs> Soviets, Russians have been doing disinformation, manipulation of, of elections and everything else since way before um, yeah, you know, they've been doing that at least since the 20s, like right after the foundation of the Soviet Union as a country, they started doing these activities. If we were doing that in reverse back at them, yeah, that's a counterintelligence mission. That's deceiving the enemy, which we're called to do in EO 12333. But we allowed ourselves as an agency to focus on the wrong part of it and to direct it against U.S. citizens and outside of a legal framework. And the fact that it didn't result in prosecutions is meaningless. Like, I, I don't remember if this is the case, so I'll turn it into a hypothetical. What if MLK became despondent that his extramarital affairs were known to somebody and, and he decided to take his own life? Like... How in the world is that a proper law enforcement or intelligence activity? It would have been super counterproductive to the growth of the United States. Well, I mean, that, just a yeah. huge uh, one letter could have changed the way <laughs> yeah. our country uh, was headed. Yeah, but even at the at the smallest point, take MLK out of it. If these activities had resulted in anyone taking their life, and mm -hmm. and I feel like I read somewhere that that was the case that that there was at least a death that kind of happened 
in in part of the Cointel Pro, Pro program, we are charged like every other law enforcement agency to protect and preserve life as as part of protecting and defending the Constitution. Like, like this is this is bad. And yeah. that is a that is a wicked understatement on my part. And that could happen. We uh, I was involved in a case where a person was falsely accused of rape. Yeah. And um, I, I actually drove him back to his house. I may have I don't know if I've told this story or not. I'll make it short. But basically, so. he uh, uh, although he was exonerated, the, the detectives told him, hey, you're good to go. And I told him that as I drove him back to his house a couple of weeks later, he committed suicide. And it was all over a false accusation. Yeah. And his, mm -hmm. I mean, his yeah. life, he's gone. His life's gone, but it just, it's set and stirred in his head and he couldn't shake it. And he committed suicide over falsehoods. And he, even if it was, well, well, that's a criminal charge there, but like the, the affair that you bring up, even if that was true, that's not worth taking your own life. And then right. he was such a figure. I mean, it, it's very damning to the United States and we're, we're attacking the wrong people. Like exactly like you're alluding to, it's the kind of had it backwards. So the, the way that I kind of wanted to wrap up this particular case was just again context context does not defend our actions context simply puts it in its place in history so i would say from the top down from hoover down the fbi believed that we were operating appropriately to address a threat that we didn't think could be countered through any other means right and and if we if we understand that context, we can at least understand that the FBI wasn't trying to monstrously subvert the country. They were using a flawed premise and perhaps less adherence to our constitutional responsibilities because they felt pressure to respond to this threat. And they made a colossal mistake through that. So, so the context is important, and it's got to be recognized by both us as an agency and by the country as like a prime example of what happens when law enforcement, in this case the FBI, is not appropriately overseen and controlled by the policymakers. Yeah. And yeah. and I say policymakers by policymakers and by the citizens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, not exactly that. I, I really, I couldn't say it any better. Yeah. It's, that's a super interesting case though. So I wanted to, to turn to a couple of others and, and I know like you guys, you guys call your own out. Um, I've got one that I want to talk about uh, that's, called the Border Coverage Program because it is much more of the FBI as an intelligence agency, but it's also got its roots here in Texas, both with our El Paso field office and our San Antonio office. Uh, Phoenix field office also played a role, as did San Diego. And this was a really what I think it's a cool conceptual program and it did result in an in intelligence of value to the United States. But it's, you know, we were talking earlier about like mistrust between government agencies. Mm -hmm. It's a story that's got that in it. And it's also a story of 
once again, the FBI probably, in this case, EO-12333 didn't exist. And so there's probably some argument that they were pushing to define the world of intelligence before there was specific rules in place. Um, but it's definitely the FBI working in an intelligence capacity outside the United States and without the concurrence of the CIA. EO-12333 does allow the FBI to do operations outside the United States in an intelligence capacity, but it's with the concurrence of the CIA as part of it. So the border coverage program ran from the late 1940s into the early 1970s, and it's all kind of southern border Mexico focus. Because what we were seeing at the time is that the Soviet Union was able to operate very effectively in Mexico, both as a place to handle sources in the U.S. government that they had recruited and who had access to classified, but also as a mechanism to deliver their agents and activities into the United States. And so to combat that, um, we set up this program where our field offices along the southern border would proactively identify and recruit sources who could provide insight into Soviet intelligence activities. And not only did we use our field, our, our field offices on the border, we also had what we now call the LEGAT, the legal attache in Mexico City. We took that office and we resourced it almost as if it was equivalent to a domestic field office. So we gave that office a lot of capacity and we asked them to do the same thing, find and recruit sources, human sources, who could provide intelligence information on Soviet activities and it, as I recall, it wasn't just counterintelligence information. It was also that foreign intelligence, that plans and intentions of a foreign government. Um, so, and what was interesting about it is they recruited agents who had been involved in a program called the Special Intelligence Service. And we can come back to that if, if you guys are interested, uh, where during the World War II, we operated as a explicitly foreign intelligence service all through South America because there was like 1.5 million German expatriates living in South America at the time. So this that was before CIA was, was formed. Um, so anyways, we took all of these agents who had experience during the war operating as clandestine intelligence collectors in South America, and we said, you're going to do that same thing but now you're going to be operating from the southern border of the United States and working into Mexico and vice versa. Um, we, we started this whole thing going back to distrust because at that time there was such institutional rivalry between the FBI and the CIA. We said CIA is not meeting our intelligence needs, and so we're going to fill them ourselves. And, and that's probably the part where before everything gets codified into who can do what and where, like maybe that's just the FBI trying to expand its mission aperture because 
because agencies do that, right? Like they see a need, they want to fill it. And so they try and occupy that space. We also were competing with the then Immigration and Naturalization Service, who is also looking for human sources along the border that can meet their intelligence needs. Uh, and that's not, you know, their intelligence needs for law enforcement operations. And, and we were competing with INS because there's only so many people along the southern border that have information that the U.S. government needs. And there was even cases, as I was reading the study, where INS had recruited somebody, we recruited the same person, and we found out, you know, hey, INS is doing this as well, working the same the same see, yeah. source. And we would tell the source, hey, man, you're not going to tell INS about what we're doing. And in fact, you're not going to tell INS this particular information because we as the Bureau need it and we're going to use it. Mm. Um, and like that is, boy, my experience in the government shows me that 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 kind of competition is not the norm that we are doing the things that the taxpayers expect and we're working closely with each other. You may talk to other FBI agents or CIA officers or whomever who says I'm full of crap, but that's been my experience. But like, what's so bad about this? It's a waste of time and effort because you got all of INS and you got the FBI and we're kind of working at cross purposes to each other mm -hmm, yeah. and we're working for the same people. We're getting paid <laughs> by the same government. It's crazy. Well, what do you think causes that? Cause it, that's in uh, local law enforcement as well. I don't oh, speak yeah. here locally, but I just across the U S is it just, why do we do that? Boy, I, you know, be, beyond my scope, I don't know. And, and I, I, what I can say is not my experience, right? Um, so I, I think I would leave it at that. My experience has been, we in general work well with all of our partners. We share information well. I don't know if we share it better or worse than pre 9-11 cause my experience comes from 2004 forward, but we get better at it all the time in the work that I have done and in the places that I've been. That makes sense. I think, well, it's weird to think that, um, you know, two different agencies in this case are, are working the same person for intelligence. But whenever we talk about like these two different agencies having two different missions, so to speak, um, maybe like the same overall mission um, in, in terms of um, the philosophy behind it. But uh, I could see a need to like deconflict almost where if one agency is having some some sort of operation going on that's gonna cause an issue for the other it seems like there would need to be some kind of like liaison between the two to say hey we're we both have the same source and this is what we're doing is that going to cause an issue with you guys or sure are you guys doing something that's going to cause an issue with us is there anyone that acts in that capacity so without getting into the specifics of it yes there okay. there is a coordination process in place and i have seen that only get better over the course of my career. Gotcha. Okay. Because we do recognize that not only not only is it a waste of time and resources, but we may create gaps 
because we're all focused on the same person. We're not talking to each other. We're not sharing information. Like, like that's not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. It, it can be very de- detrimental. And even at like a very, very small local level, it can be super detrimental if uh, information's not being shared like that. But interesting. So I, I talked a little bit about the FBI Special Intelligence Service and the role it played in the border coverage program. Um, of itself, like a, a friend of mine who is an academic is the one who who really helped me understand this part of FBI history because it's it is not, I think, well, well publicized. Um, but during World War Two, the FBI saw this gap where we understood that there was a substantial German population in South America that could be leveraged by the Nazi government for both their intelligence purposes, but also for, you know, uh, espionage, sabotage, all of these things. And so we'd better put a, a collection platform in place to learn about it so that we could then counter the intelligence activities and so that we could it was it was uh explicitly stated as part of the mission we could also tell the right parts of the u.s government the intelligence information we learned that those parts of the u.s government needed to do their missions during wartime so it started the legal attache position but it has no bearing whatsoever on how FBI legal attaches function today. Are you guys familiar with the legat as as a term or what they do? I, I personally am not. No. So the FBI assigns special agents um, with, you know, at, working at U.S. embassies worldwide. They're called legal attaches, also abbreviated as legats. And that job now is law enforcement coordination and like investigative assistance and sometimes training to foreign law enforcement partners it is completely overt and it is a it is a coordination function not not an intelligence collection function but the job title was the same between them so i just explicitly draw that line that what I'm talking about for the special intelligence service that no longer exists. It got shut down in 1947 and our current legal attaches are not clandestine intelligence collectors is that's why we created that title of legal attache was because we thought, and rightfully so that can't be an FBI agent. He has some kind of, legal portfolio and he is an attache at the u.s embassy wherever that would happen to be and makes sense if i remember the history correctly we also did non-official cover uh positions throughout south america where we would put fbi agents as businessmen in buenos aires or uruguay or wherever the heck it might be um i'm sorry uh hunter i think i interrupted a question or a thought. Oh, no, that no, I, I always that was that that makes sense. So I need to take my hoodie off. I'm about <laughs> to burn. You, you want to take a break? Sure. Okay, we'll take a break real quick and then we'll pick up on on this. Okay. So. 
So we're back from the break. Uh, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off in the middle of some information about the uh, Special Intelligence Service. Yeah, so I, I, I'd spent some time just talking about, you know, the legal attache position that was used in the Special Intelligence Service, and, and it was used as a clandestine intelligence collection cover. So think kind of what, what we all see in, in the TV and maybe we've read in books about CIA. It was that, it was kind of that method, um, but before CIA was, was formed. Um, and it has no bearing whatsoever on the FBI's legal attache program now, which is it is a law enforcement coordination program with other foreign law enforcement partners. And and just super brief on this one. Again, it speaks to the reality that the FBI has been an intelligence collecting agency from the start, coupled with our law enforcement powers and authorities and and this case this operation was very much of that same mind in that we used SIS special intelligence service as a platform to learn about Nazi espionage and saboteur efforts and to counter those whether it was with law enforcement powers or you know liaison with foreign law enforcement but we also took intelligence requirements from other parts of the U.S. government, and we address them. The Department of the Navy wanted to understand what the German Navy was doing in Brazil or what they were doing in Chile or wherever it was, and we would collect intelligence on that. There was no law enforcement-specific purpose, but there was a counterintelligence purpose because now we knew what the Nazis were doing the Nazis didn't realize that we knew it, and we were telling the part of the U.S. government that needed that information so that they could do something with it. That is counterintelligence as well. We often think about it as, you know, we find the U.S. person spy who's stealing classified and we put handcuffs on them and we send them to jail. That is a type of counterintelligence called counterespionage. But it's also counterintelligence to learn what our whoever the adversary is, the Nazis, whatever, learn what they're trying to keep hidden from us and whether we can do something about it or whether another part of the U.S. government can get that information, that intelligence to the right place so that some part of the U.S. government can use it for the advantage of U.S. national security. That's another approach to counterintelligence. So, um, and and I think just kind of the stats. So from approximately 1940 to 1946, this whole program of SIS found, I think, almost 900 Nazi spies that were operating <laughs> throughout the totality of South America. And I, I don't know what happened on an individual basis, but whether we would reveal those Nazi spies to the host nation, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, you know, whatever, or whether we were somehow able to take action ourselves, like that's impactful. That's taking intelligence information and using it. And then also answering uh, the needs of other U.S. government agencies for intelligence information as well. And I just, it's such a cool part of our history 
I didn't even really understand it or learn about it until I had a chance to talk to this friend of mine. Um, and so it's just, it's one of those fascinating little parts and, and there's not necessarily a whole lot more to talk about other than FBI as an intelligence agency since our founding. Yeah, that's, uh, oh, go ahead, Jones. I was just going to say, do you think it's, which I don't know how much you can get into that. Is it, do you think it's more difficult for agents in the United States to go to other countries and I'm not, I don't want to say spy as much as just maybe see what's going on versus people coming over here. Do you think it's easier for other countries, agents to come to the United States and observe things versus us going over there? Because those other countries, a lot of them that we may be wanting to look at are so closed in. Yeah. I, so let me address the part that I have some expertise in, which is foreign countries operating, conducting intelligence activities in the United States. And there's, I don't think there is any real argument that it is um, because of the freedoms that we have and the open nature of our society that has always been a factor that made it easier for the countries that opposed our interests to come to the United States and collect information of value to them. And that's not even information all the time that we would have viewed as harmful to us like the soviets wanted to understand our crop production right like because that was of value to them as they were trying to plan their own crop production or whatever the reason may be like things that especially authoritarian countries view as secret or intelligence information is information that we in the united states would share openly you know and and so so yes just by virtue of who we are as a country by the government that we've built for ourselves yes our adversaries haven't far e they have the ability to operate here um which i suspect would be different than the us government's ability to operate in other countries and especially authoritarian ones yeah, that that makes sense. So kind of the last one that I wanted to talk about from a historical perspective, and and again, it's it's one of these that I think gets lost in just kind of what we can pay attention to historically. Um, but it's one of the longest running, I think, and probably, in my opinion, one of the most important human source foreign intelligence operations, certainly that the FBI has run um, and that I'm aware of from from books, from from the historical record. And it's called Operation Solo. And and it talks about like as a case, it's just really fascinating. And it and it talks about a lot of things that are FBI core strengths and that derive from that dual nature that we have. But it's really what it comes down to is the FBI has a unique ability to find and recruit human sources who live in the United States, whether they are U.S. citizens, lawful permanent residents, or some other status for being here, to collect foreign intelligence information that serves U.S. national security interests. And in my opinion, 
the FBI was able to make Operation Solo happen because we had superior knowledge of the area in which the human source lived. And I'll, I'll name them. None of this is secret. It's, it's in this book, Operation Solo, that I mentioned earlier. Um, but it's, it's the fact that we are always present in the areas of responsibility that we have. And because we have agents and employees and analysts who live and work in these areas, and quite often for the majority of their career, like we know who the players are and we know what the what things are of particular importance. And we're able to to understand that within the framework, in this case for counterintelligence purposes. Um and and also the fact that we keep really good records, like any law enforcement or intelligence agency would. And in our case, our records go back 115 years, right? And, you know, credit to Hoover, our records are searchable and we can find information, some people would argue, but relatively easily um, to make connections. And so the reason all that becomes relevant in, in the case of Operation Solo was it's not like the movies. You don't see Jason Bourne go out and find the one person he needs to get his job done and he convinces that person in the course of 10 minutes to work for him, right? Hmm. This took decades. So there was a, a person named Morris Childs who lived, I think, in the Chicago area. And this is, it, it starts in like the 1930s and it takes place over the next four or five decades. So Morris is a Ukrainian uh, Jewish immigrant who came to the United States with his family in the early like 1910s. And over time, he became involved in the CPUSA, Communist Party of the United States of America, and he rose in prominence within the CPUSA over the course of about uh, 10 or 15 years. And he eventually, in his early, uh, late 20s, excuse me, got recruited to go to uh, what was called the International Lenin School in Moscow, which the purpose of that school was to develop professional revolutionaries to export communism across the globe. And all of this, I promise you, will kind of come together. When he was at the Lenin School, he became uh, friends with a guy named Mikhail, Mikhail Suslov, who went on to be a U.S.-Soviet kind of foreign uh, communist party expert under Stalin and then Khrushchev and then Brezhnev, all leaders of the Soviet Union. So he's becomes friends with a really powerfully connected Soviet official. His younger brother is a guy named Jack Childs, who's also really involved in the CPUSA, but he does he does more like tactical level work. In fact, at one point in the 30s, uh, CPUSA used him as a courier in Germany, taking like documents and money to the Communist Party in Germany, who is operating under the Nazis at that point. Like, it's just fascinating cloak and dagger type stuff. And then uh, Jack became a bodyguard slash assistant to the leader of the CPUSA, a guy named Earl Browder. So... So it's 
you know, there's all these kind of internal small politics that are at play with the child's family, and they're kind of rising within the Communist Party here in the United States. But in 1945, there's some kind of internal fight, and Earl Browder, the leader, gets booted. And at that point, both Jack and Morris, they get demoted within the Communist Party. So they lose a lot of their prominence and in, in access. And then further, Morris gets sick. And I forget what it was, but it, it was like a debilitating illness. So how does this relate to the FBI and like our long, our long institutional memory and our presence? Well, we had been following Jack and Morris throughout their whole career and their rise in the Communist Party. And then we saw their downfall. And at that point, the case agent said, well, this is an opportunity for us to take the temperature of the child's brothers and see just how loyal are they to the Communist Party versus their loyalty to the United States. And so the case agents apparently initially approached Jack uh, because we saw him get booted. And we said, hey, man, are you willing to help the FBI to counter Soviet incursions into the United States. And Jack said, yeah, man, I was never really all that excited about communism to begin with. I was in this because my big brother Morris was so, you know, taken with the communist party, but now, man, they've betrayed us. So like, I got no loyalty to these guys. But when Jack realized that what we were trying to do was penetrate the Communist Party writ large, said, I'm not your guy. I'm the tactical guy. You need to go to my brother Morris. And so what the FBI did as part of the recruitment for uh, Morris was we said, hey, man, we know that things aren't going well with your standing in the Communist Party, and we know that you're really ill. We'd like to help you. And we arranged for him because he didn't have the money for treatment. So we arranged for him to get treated at the Mayo Clinic. And for whatever the illness was, that treatment was able to address whatever his, his illness was and help him get better. And, and that's, that's great because now we're at a point where you know Morris and Jack were motivated for multiple reasons to work with us as the FBI but we got a problem. They don't, they don't have the access that they did under Browder. So again, how does this tie back to the FBI being a long-term presence? Well, we took our time and we said, we've got people within the organization. And if we're patient and we work with them, then perhaps they can regain their prominence and the access to information that we need. And that's what happened in this case. So I think we recruited uh, Morris and Jack maybe around 1950 or so. Um, yeah, 1952. And, and we worked with them for the next four years while they started reintegrating themselves within the Communist Party of the United States of America. And Morris especially got himself to a point where the CPUSA chose him 
Um, sorry, the CPUSA chose him in 1957 to represent the party in Moscow at kind of the, I think they did it annually. They would hold this all Soviet conference. I think that's what they called it. Um, and that was a non-public event. Like the, the communist party of the Soviet union would only reveal information that they wanted to be revealed. There was no journalistic coverage or, or anything else. It wasn't an open event. And that trip in 1957 was the first of 52 trips that Morris took with the FBI's explicit support, but hidden, you know, we, we weren't announcing this. Mm -hmm. And he was able to leverage his relationship with this guy, Susloff, that I mentioned. And he became incredibly well regarded by Soviet leadership and eventually was given access to intelligence on both internal Soviet matters that they wanted the CPUSA to be aware of, but also foreign policy. Like, if I recall correctly, this isn't necessarily super, you know, well-known, but in, I think, 1969, um, People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, they had a border war. Um, I forget how long it lasted. It wasn't years. It was weeks or months. But it represented a real split in Sino-Soviet relations, and Morris was able to gain intelligence, I think, about that conflict just as an example of like the types of intelligence that he brought back to the United States, to his FBI handlers, that the FBI was then able to provide to the parts of the U.S. government that needed it. As the reality was the Bureau wasn't going to do anything about the Soviets and the Chinese fighting each other. But we knew it, and we had that responsibility to provide it to the parts of the U.S. government that needed it. And I mentioned this earlier, but, but just to reiterate it, another part of critical intelligence that uh, Childs brought back, Morris brought back, was that the Soviet Union was explicitly funding the CPUSA to this $30 million dollars. And that now puts them in a position where they are not just a First Amendment protected group. They're, they're an agent of a foreign power acting as such in the United States. They are not representing the interests of their U.S. membership for U.S. political purposes. They may be doing that, but they are also representing the Soviet Union's interests with their explicit financial support. And... You know, to flash forward to today, there's stuff in the news about the Foreign Agent Registration Act. I think some people at least have heard that. It's not illegal to take money from a foreign government to represent their interests. What's illegal is taking that money, representing their interests, but not disclosing it to the people when you're lobbying before the U.S. government. Hmm. Um so, so Morris took these trips from 1957 to 1977, so 20 years. Again, the FBI is a unique agency to take that type of long-term mission because, especially in this case, we kept the case agent, the handling team, the same. 
The people that handled him at the start were largely the people that handled him at the end. And in some cases, that can create problems, right? Because you can fall in love with your source, and, and not romantically, but you can believe that your source does no wrong because you've worked with them so long. But in this case, it was clearly to the U.S. government's benefit, as it should be noted that Morris was taking a tremendous amount of risk. He did not have diplomatic immunity when he traveled to Moscow. If it ever got revealed that he was a U.S. asset, arrested, minimum, executed, possibly, not without, not, it's not outside the realm of probability. And so that was another advantage of keeping the investigative team small was to prevent leaks. And I think as, as I remember the whole story, the FBI went to great lengths to protect Morris and Jack as sources of this intelligence information. Is there a movie about that or? I, I don't, there may be a documentary. I feel like there is, I'm not aware of any fictionalized movie. There's definitely a book operation solo um and it's let's see yeah operation solo by john barron b-a-r-r-o-n that does a great job and it's not a dry history book it's been a little while since i've read it but and it reads a little bit like a spy thriller well, it does just, it sounds like a plot of a, of a movie yeah. that's what i was gonna say yeah it yeah. sounds exciting and and kind of just to to highlight the importance that the U.S. government put on this intelligence information. So in 1987, Morris had been, you know, he had left um, FBI kind of service as a, as a human source. He'd been gone for five years. Um, so in 1987, President Reagan presented him and his brother Jack, who had since died, so it was posthumously, the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom, because his information was so consequential to U.S. efforts to combat Soviet expansion across the world. And that, that activity, that intelligence activity, does not happen without the FBI. It required the FBI, our ability to be kind of present in that space and and to be allowed to be patient enough to see that th that opportunity develop over the course of years, and part of how we could be patient was we we kept records. Like we made note: here's the key leaders in the CPUSA at this time, and now at this time, well, these two guys who used to be key leaders, they're not anymore. What kind of danger do those guys have, especially after receiving that award? Um, would Russia try to do something to them in this country or is that more movie type stuff? Yeah, that's that is way more movie type, I think. So the idea that the Soviets and now the Russians would attempt lethal action against people that that they think represent harm to them or, or betrayed them, like we know that that's happened. That's the 2018 Skripal incident in the UK. Um, and I forget his name, but there was also the uh, polonium poisoning incident yep. in 2006. Um, I am not aware of the Russian government targeting anybody that was not a Russian citizen and former employee. 
um, outside of Russia. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm just not aware of it. But I think I do think it would be more the plot of a movie that they would have targeted Morris. Um, and in this case, for sure, best of our knowledge, that was not the case. I believe he died natural causes after a very long uh, life spent in in true service to this country. Hmm. That's pretty wild that they were able to, because he was, a, I'm sure, a believer in communism because he sure. was part of that organization. And whether it was through influencing by the agents or he, I mean, I understand he had some issues because he was kind of knocked down within the organization, but still if he fundamentally believed what they were standing for, um, somebody did a good job or he had a fundamental change in his belief in order to start working for the United States government. Yeah. And that's so, so I am only focusing on the FBI cause I'm an FBI agent and that's what we're here to talk about. Right. So none of this is to denigrate other agencies that also conduct intelligence activities for the U.S. government. But I will say that, again, for the FBI, it's not that we focused on Morris because he was Morris Childs. We were looking for human sources who could help us gain intelligence about the CPUSA. And we collected intelligence information to support that outcome over the course of decades. And it's a matter of filtering through all of that information. And as you begin filtering it, well, now you see, oh, Jack and Morris Child, their circumstances have changed. Perhaps they would be good people for us to approach. So... You know, how much influencing did we do, Vice? How much, you know, his his thoughts and feelings towards the CPUSA have changed? I, I don't recall. I'm pretty confident that Barron does a good job of describing that in the book. It's just been a while since I've read it. Um, but I guess, Brandon, my the point that I was I was trying to get to, um, you focus on the opportunity. You you don't get locked in on a particular person, like just making this up. Um, let's say, you know, I wanted to understand about Russia, right? And what they were plans and intentions were. Well, the ideal person to recruit would be president Putin because he knows everything. Right. Mm. But, but if I tried that approach, I would wildly fail because that's just not going to happen. So you collect information over the course of time, you assess it, and you look for where a person with access and motivations, where that lines up. And that's who they focused on here for Operation Solo, because over the course of 20 years or whatever it was... Well, and I think that deserves credit that they stayed with it, because yeah. I think <laughs> in, uh, you know... U.S. policy, we've seen things where they, they don't stick with certain things and it just turns bad. Uh, there's, well, just negative things happen because they're not sticking with things they, they, they leave too early or disorganized. Well, that shows a lot of organization dedication to the FBI that they're like, you're talking a decades-long investigation. I mean, that's uh, yeah. that, that shows well, um, a good initiative on their part and, and looking forward and seeing like, hey, we have to stick with this because these are the results we could have if it's successful. Yeah. And one thing I'm sure it's, it's probably covered in the book, but 
with an investigation like or an operation like this that went on for you know around two decades was this handed off to like other agents as time went on or did someone work like their whole career through this yeah it was it was the second so as i as i recall one agent there was like four total handlers in the team four fbi agents who handled jack and morris one of them um i even wrote his name down walter boyle he worked on it for the entire 20 years so wow. basically his whole career was whole just career. one particular case or did he probably <laughs> he, do others? he would do other things yeah, yeah for sure because mm. it's not every second of every day involved in this sure but the other three or four agents they worked for i think about 13 years on it wow. and and that was that was a choice as i understand it that the FBI made because there was such it was such valuable information and the danger to Morris and Jack was so great that we wanted to limit the knowledge of them as the sources as tightly as we could. And and that is a great credit to the FBI at that time for making that decision to take people who could have done other things with their career and keep them associated with this one operation for that long. It's incredible from uh, any law enforcement listening to this program. I mean, can you imagine being 10 to 20 year investigation? I mean, I understand that things <laughs> yeah. are changing in the investigation. Maybe goals are changing, probably information's changing, but that is uh, to stick with that. That, that I mean, that's a, that's a very cool story. I think that, yeah. that they stuck with that and, well, imagine us like working the same CI for two decades straight. It's well, they had to have a at a certain point. They had to have a certain uh, personal, not personal, like they was going out to dinner as friends. But there had they had to almost like each other to a certain extent. I mean, sure. after working yeah. with somebody for twenty years, I mean that's just like a coworker you work with for twenty years. You're gonna yeah. there's gonna be yeah there's, trust there. Yes, and and that is yes, absolutely, and that's you know any any law enforcement officer or intelligence professional who works CIs, human sources, like that is that balance we all have to find, right? Whether we like them or not, they've got to trust us because they're putting a lot at stake by working for us and we have to trust them. Uh, and we can't allow that to bleed over into, you know, personal feelings that cloud the operation. I, I hadn't planned to talk about this, but I was just listening to it the other day. Um, guy named uh, James Olson. He's a retired CIA officer who's now down at the Bush School of Intelligence at A&M. Um, he wrote a book to call called To Catch a Spy. I've and, heard of that. And he highlights a particular case from the early 2000s where an FBI agent had been running a Chinese national who immigrated to the United States, subsequently became a U.S. citizen. I think her name was Katrina Leung. And, and it was, you know, we evaluated her intelligence reporting at the time as some of the best in the world, right? Like it was, it was awesome. Except for the fact that she was working for Chinese intelligence the whole time. And one of the reasons we didn't find out about it was the case agent his name's out of my mind right now. Um, somebody, somebody will Google it as they listen to this and then yell at me for not remembering. <laughs> but he had a sexual relationship with her. 
And that that clearly flawed his ability to be um, rational and to be analytic about understanding her motivations and why she was providing intelligence. Um, so it just goes to that point. Like that's that's one of the challenges of of working human sources like this for any of us. You have to have that relationship of trust, and you also have to have enough professionalism to keep that distance between you and the person who is working to support your investigation, your operation, whatever it is. Um, she probably used that. As, I mean, obviously, that's yeah, what she, yeah. she used that, and they probably picked somebody like her and just so she could use that asset, if you will. I, I'm, I am not super familiar with the details of the case, but but I have to assume that that's right. And that was probably a deliberate decision by both her and her Chinese handlers. Um, so, so yeah, this, that's why I love operation solo so much because it says it's, it's a single activity that defines the best of the FBI that I've worked in our ability to take the long view to, remain focused for years and decades on a problem and apply the resources needed to accomplish whatever our objective is. And that's, I, that's not unique to the FBI, but it's something very special about the FBI as I've worked there is that, yes, we absolutely have short fuse investigations and we work bank robberies and we work kidnappings and these things that have to be resolved quickly. But we also work public corruption cases that take years, if not decades, complex uh, white collar fraud stuff, healthcare fraud, counterintelligence, counterterrorism investigations. I don't think I think non law enforcement types will have a difficult time understanding how special is the right word, but how difficult that is to have an investigation go that long. Like, oh, yeah, and I get it. But um, (laughs) I'm a regular citizen that does something else for a living. I don't know if they're going to cue in on just how how unique that is and how difficult it would be to to do something for that many you know couple of decades. That's uh, I mean that that's mind blowing to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, that's some extremely remarkable focus and dedication, to say the least. Yeah. But my big takeaway from that is to try to avoid having sex with your CIs. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, that's pretty one of, one of the first things they teach you when you go to that that yeah, basic yeah. class, yeah. Yeah, CI school. Yeah. Like don't don't fall for it. Yep. Well, but I can I can see government <laughs> doing that and using that as a as yeah. a, oh, yeah, as I a mean, tool to sit I'm there sure and be an, an corrupt tool, folks. but yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so for me, like I I'm super grateful to be able to talk about kind of the history of the FBI just as this dual intelligence and, and law enforcement agency. And, and hopefully I've represented the history <laughs> somewhat accurately. Um, but, you know, for me, like I'll, I'll go in whatever direction that you want to go next. I'd love to talk uh, to the initial topic that, that, you know, sparked your interest, this idea of transnational repression Yes. Yeah. So I know that whenever whenever we first got acquainted, um, it was we had a uh, peace officers association meeting that you spoke at, and um, yeah, transnational repression. Um, 
that was a really big eye-opening thing for me and I think a lot of people who work around our area here in Texas. Um, for our audience and for uh, just other officers who might be listening or watching, can you define like what, what is transnational repression and then can you basically rehash yeah. the Peace Officers Association meeting? So, you know, when when you first asked me to, to come on and talk and and I wasn't sure like what what was I going to be able to add um, and and also how could I help the panhandle from a counterintelligence perspective because I am here I'm speaking as an FBI agent I have the full support of my agency uh, which I'm incredibly grateful for and and so I guess to answer your question I'm going to step back a second and say I I am the counterintelligence agent assigned by the FBI to work those investigations in the panhandle of Texas. And I was hired specifically to work at uh, DOE's uh, Pantex facility that's in the general area um, to focus on counterintelligence matters in partnership with DOE there. And I also have this broader kind of job requirement for understanding what could be happening in the panhandle. And so this has not been a place that the FBI has focused a lot of our counterintelligence uh, efforts on for a little over 10 years now. And everybody that I've had a chance to talk with, I've, I've said this to, I'm not here because there's new threat information that's specific to the panhandle. I am here because the world over the past decade has changed so fundamentally in the ability for foreign actors to gain access to any place in the United States to include the panhandle. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that we've got, again, just making stuff up, does that mean we've got Chinese intelligence officers walking around, you know, downtown Amarillo? I don't know. Probably not, but that's something that I have to take into consideration and investigate to prove or disprove that. What I do know is that the panhandle of Texas is remarkably important to the United States as a whole. We've got the Pantex facility, and folks can look that up on their own to see what goes on there, but it matters. We also have, I've heard from several different experts, we have roughly 30% of the country's beef production somehow gets processed within, I think, 150 miles of Amarillo. We've got energy in significant quantities. And we have a substantial per capita um, refugee population and I'm, I'm saying refugee loosely so please forgive me for those who 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 have a more detailed understanding we have people from across the world who have moved here to Amarillo quite often because we have such a robust charitable organizational structure here that has offered been able to create opportunities to bring people from really troubled parts of the world here to the United States. And, and so all of these are things that, that I have to 
pay attention to as a counterintelligence investigator. Because if I'm putting my bad guy hat on, well, yes, foreign governments, foreign intelligence agencies absolutely would have an interest in Pantex plant. They would also have an interest in our food production. And we've talked for years about this in a counterterrorism perspective. How do we harden our food production to prevent an al-Qaeda or an ISIS from somehow you know, harming it? And I think we also need to take a look at whether foreign actors, foreign government actors, want to use our food capacity as a way to harm the United States economically, but also just on a practical level, if you were somehow able to disrupt that amount of our beef production, that is going to have ripple effects across the United States. There's just no way it couldn't. Beef is going to be more expensive. It's going to be scarcer. That's going to create problems and instability, right? And then looking at the refugee population, this brings us to transnational repression. This is not speculation. It is known and it is in the news that we have foreign governments who reach into the United States. Sometimes they use social media. Sometimes they use third-party actors on their behalf. Sometimes they do it directly and they attempt to impact, to change, to subvert the way that people here in the United States talk, think, vote, live their lives. Because however they're living their lives in the United States, that foreign country says that's against our interests. That's what transnational repression is at its core. And to put it into um, kind of a, a perspective for local and state and criminal investigators, it's harassment, it's intimidation, uh, it can be battery, That's that has happened. Um, it can be fraud, it can be a whole range of criminal activities. Transnational repression is not a criminal violation. That's the intelligence activity. The criminal violation that underscores it could be one of those many things, and I, I wrote it down somewhere, and maybe we'll get to it, some of the others that we've charged, but I've said it's in the news, like within the past year, the FBI has identified uh, Chinese uh, installations, I think in New York, Seattle, a few other places where they embedded Chinese Ministry of Public Safety police officers into non-diplomatic establishments in these cities and as I remember the news reporting, and that's all I, I have right now is, is the news reporting in my memory, you know, the ostensible purpose was to provide like consular affairs and, and other type of citizen services, but that these in reality were a platform where the Chinese government could intimidate, could threaten, could harass Chinese Americans to get those Chinese Americans or not even Chinese Americans, Chinese who were in the United States to change their behavior, whether that's to stop criticizing the government or do something that the Chinese government wanted them to do, you know, doesn't matter. It's 
impacting ultimately their First Amendment rights to speak and associate free of intimidation and threat, not only from the U.S. government, but from any government. That right is not specific to the government that's doing it. It's a God-given right. They have that freedom from all government coercion. Um, and so when I was given the talk, like one of the things that I, I mentioned to y'all was that under international law, intelligence activities are permissible. Like it is internationally lawful for, let's just make it up for country A to spy on country B and vice versa. But while every country acknowledges that, they also say, well, in my country, it is illegal for any other country to spy against my citizens, right? Right. So it's it's just this it's just this interesting kind of duality that that we have, this tension between intelligence and counterintelligence. And in general, when it's when it's this idea of, you know, the FBI running Operation Solo to acquire Soviet secrets. Like the Soviets did the reverse to us. And that's there's no there's no classified information about that. There's Robert Hansen, one of our own, an FBI agent who spied on behalf of the Soviets and then the Russians. Yeah. There's um Earl Pitts. There's there's all of these guys who all of these people, because it's not just limited to guys who spied on behalf of foreign countries against the United States interests, betrayed their position of trust. And at a certain level, like, like for me, that's, that's just my work. Like my job is to counter that from happening. But Brandon, you mentioned it like, you know, you don't get mad at the criminals, right? Like it's, it's just, it's work. It's professional. Like, they're, they're doing what they think they have to do. You're doing what you think that you have to do to stop that under the law. And, you know, the ideal situation is when you and the guy who's running away from you can sit down afterward and say, you know, hey, I would have gotten away from you if only my car had been shorter or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have that same feeling for a lot of what foreign countries are trying to do. It's their job to do it. It's my job to stop it. Transnational repression is different. It makes me, I, it truly does make me angry to have a foreign government arrogant enough to think that they can come into my country and deny a person such a fundamental right, something that we all hold as dear as we do of being able to say what I want you know, practice my religion or lack thereof exactly what I want to associate with the people that I want to associate with, to read the things that I want to read and from the people. That's probably why they're here in the first place is because to get away from all that, well, the irony right. of it is they get away from it and then their Follow government them. is still able to reach out and touch them and, and control them in the same way they were in the original country. I mean, yeah, that's it's terrible. <laughs> so for me, as I've started looking at, at the the refugee population, the migrant population that we have here in the panhandle, there's at least 10 different communities who live in the panhandle writ large and whose native country, the country that they came from, 
have been observed engaging in transnational repression, whether in the United States or in some other part of the world. And so for me, like, these are, these, these are my neighbors. These are our neighbors. These are, in some cases, our friends. These are the people that we go to church with or that our kids go to school with or whatever it may be. So there's a bit of a personal aspect to this as well um, as just, you know, my, my moral outrage that, that a country mm -hmm. would think that they could do this here in the United States. Um, and so, so, so why am I doing this? Like, what's the connection with local and state law enforcement? And not just that, but local communities. I am one investigator and somebody told me that the panhandle is roughly the size of West Virginia, just like to make a comparison. I am not going to be able to have any effect on people being persecuted by a foreign government in this country if I'm not talking to partners both in private sector, in law enforcement, in local and state government about it, because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily look like an intelligence activity. The Chinese example that we talked about, that's pretty clear. Like the Chinese government set up an organization and they didn't really attempt to hide their, their organizing hand behind it. But if it's happening on social media, well, you know, is that cyberbullying or is it a foreign government acting? If it's, a third person here in the United States that that foreign government has recruited to be their representative? Is that just a personal fight between two people who disagree on something? Or is there a government control behind it? And I'm not going to see even a small sliver of that on my own. Who will see it? It's the patrol officers who are running calls for service for a domestic altercation or for a whatever it is. And I had a chance with a local police department a couple of weeks ago to sit down and talk to them about this at length. And, and they have one of these large, you know, concentrations of migrants and refugees in their, in their city. And they told me like, we never even thought that there could be more behind this. So at least now, as they're examining, you know, an individual call for service, they have in their mind, well, maybe there's an additional question that I could ask. Hey, what's behind this personal problem between you and your neighbor? Do you think that there's something where, you know, your former country may be influencing this guy to do something? I don't know. Like mm -hmm. that extra question could be asked. And it's also a chance for me to say to, to every uh, local and state partner that I can find here in the panhandle, like, don't, don't think too much about this. If you have an inclination that in your community that this repression is happening directed by a foreign government, give me a call. I'll come out. I'd like to be part of the interview with the person, whether it's the victim or the offender to start sorting it out. This is a fed that part of it's a federal matter. And I will bring everything that I can to bear against that problem here. And we were talking a little bit about how it happens. 
So it's definitely cyber attacks, it's malware, it's hacking, it's using computers, but also people for surveillance. And we'll talk about the people in a minute. It's harassment, it's threats, intimidation. It can be disinformation through social media, like trying to denigrate a person or, you know, get them from a position of influence in the community and, and get them cast down. It can be threatening and imprisoning their their friends and family who live uh, outside the United States. Um, it can be trying to actually enter the United States and pull people back to that foreign country so that they can be imprisoned or that so that they can be executed. Um, and, and it's also can be things as simple as, you know, people who, migrate to immigrate to the United States, they don't necessarily just abandon their former lives. They may have property. They definitely have family. They may want to go back to that country now as a U.S. citizen to take care of a business matter or to see their family or whatever. And the country may simply say, we're not giving you a visa until you stop talking or until you say what we want you to say. Or, hey, you know, you owe back taxes on your property. And instead of giving you a chance to pay it off, we're just going to seize it unless you say what we want you to say or don't say what we don't want you to say. Um, so, and I guess one last, couple last points on this. Um, in person, it does happen it's not just on social media. We have seen physical surveillance conducted in the United States. It was on behalf of a foreign government. It was a particular, they were targeting an Iranian-American journalist out of New York. Iran used a private investigator. They hired him, I don't know, probably through shell companies or something, but they hired a private investigator to conduct physical surveillance on this Iranian journalist who was speaking out against the government of Iran. I mean, that's that's crazy. That that is not normal, you know, nation state to nation state intelligence activity. And I, I won't go into the details here just because I want to be mindful of, of time. But the great news about that particular case with the Iranian American journalist. We found it. We were able to prosecute the people here in the United States who were supporting it. We were able to indict the Iranian government officials who were directly involved in it. Should they ever travel to an extradition country, we will be able to get them. But most importantly, I, I respect this woman greatly, and I won't just keep talking about her in the abstract. Um, let's see. Her name is Masi Alinajad. What a brave woman, despite all of this activity, which was intended to get her out of the United States to a place where Iran could do whatever they were going to do to her. She said, I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm going to continue to speak out against the abuses that the government of Iran is doing to its own people in Iran and I'm going to speak for what's right, and I'm not going to be intimidated, and I'm not going to be shut up. This activity is 
something our local and state officers do see. And I want to tell them that it could be a layer behind just the harassment, the intimidation, the threatening, that day-to-day churn that they may come across in their calls for service, their interactions with the public. And if they have any inclination that there is a foreign government behind that targeting these uh, migrant populations, these refugee populations here in the panhandle, I want to talk to them. I want to, I want to be able to, um, to be able to, uh, help be a part of solving that problem. And so what I would say, um, just as a general matter, like FBI agents, we are overt employees of the U S government. If you as a local or a state officer or as a member of the public come across something and, and you think it does fall into this transnational repression, foreign governments working to, to intimidate, threaten, harass, bully people here in the United States, um, call the Dallas field office. You can Google it. You can find the main number, ask it connected to me, and they will connect you to me. And we can figure out what's going on and hopefully help to protect the panhandle and the people here and the industries here that, that are so critical to this country. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm kind of running out of steam on this. And so I'm going to shut up for a minute and let you guys actually <laughs> talk, I think. No, no. Well, like, everything you just said is, is incredible. And, and um, this woman that you mentioned that, you know, is, still continuing to speak out against the government of Iran, despite her circumstances and everything. That is incredible. We need more people like that. Um, everyone can stand to learn something from that. And I just think it's awesome that there are, uh, there are agents in the FBI and there's, there's just people out there such as yourself who are taking a very proactive approach to these issues and actually doing something to try and resolve them. And, uh, and that's why initially when, when we first met, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just super thrilled that you were able to come out here today and, and speak about not only everything else that we've spoken about, but this specifically, because we, we have seen that in, around our area and we will continue to see it. And people need to know that something can be done yeah. and something is being done it just takes all of us working together to do it, which sounds super corny, but it's true. Well, and it's the other part that I see about it. Like I, I think all of us got into law enforcement because we wanted to make a difference. We wanted to do something positive for the communities that we live in. Absolutely. And this is one of those cases where we, as, as the FBI have realized that, that, the people we need to partner with are our local and state uh, law enforcement partners because you guys are in direct connection with the community in a way that we can't be not at the same level of, of connection, right? Because right, yeah. I'm not running patrol in any city in the panhandle on a daily basis. But more importantly, like it's not just the the federal government adding one more thing to local and state officers plates. It's saying you guys can see it and we want to work with you to help solve it. 
but we are paying attention. This is absolutely a mission priority for FBI, for FBI writ large, and for the counterintelligence division of the FBI. And I, I would be remiss, and and if we could put this into the show notes, maybe um, there are two other resources I can offer to anyone who encounters this. Um, first and foremost, they can go to fbi.gov backslash TNR, and you'll find descriptions of what transnational repression is, indicators of it, but as importantly, you're going to find threat intimidation guides. I think that's what we're calling them. We basically put into, I think right now, 61 different languages we created pamphlets that say, hey, you, arrival to the United States who is experiencing this activity, here is what we see foreign countries doing to repress their populations that have moved to the United States. And, and so we've tried to take the language barrier out of it if there is one. So that's an incredible resource. They can also go to 1-800-CALL-FBI and that's, you know, for outside the panhandle, for anywhere in the United States, if you don't know where else to go and you yourself are experiencing transnational repression or you are seeing it happen in your community, you can call 1-800-CALL-FBI and that will take that initial report and it'll get routed to the right field office, to the right part of the FBI who can then follow up on it and investigate it. Go ahead. Sorry. That's no, I was gonna say, that's great information. Yeah, we can absolutely link that and our description on on our content, and so hopefully that'll make it you know even easier for people to to just find and be convenient. So well, this whole thing's been super informative, and I think that people listening, uh, I don't think it's something that people were aware of, <clears throat> and I think it also speaks volumes for our country as a whole that we uh, basically if you come here, we protect you as a government, as a society, yeah. and just because you're not an, an American and you come here to live and to better yourself, there's measures in place for your protection. And I think a lot of times those foreign nationals may not even know that or realize it. And those other countries and influences are probably trying, they're definitely not letting them know that that's out there because they <laughs> want them to under, not think that those options are available for them, but they are. Well, and, and if we think about this for a second, and I remember the, I, I got distracted. I remembered the one other point I wanted to make, but if we think about this, a lot of the types of governments that would engage in this, the people that are doing it would be the closest equivalent to the FBI or to a national police. And if you come to the United States because you're fleeing that kind of repression in the place you were born in, like you may not understand that the FBI is not that that agency that was repressing you where you were born at and that's another part of the partnership with state and local officers like you have much more opportunity to interact with the communities and build trust with them and so something that they may not this person who has come to the United States they not only may they not realize that it's against federal law for this to happen they may be scared of the FBI because they haven't yet you know, learned enough about the United States to understand 
how we are constrained, how we operate within the rule of law, how we are here to protect the rights of citizens, of people here in the United States and to protect the Constitution. And so local and state officers may be that bridge who can help to illuminate this this activity and allow us to bring federal resources to bear against it. Um, just to, to make it real, especially for the people in the panhandle. So as research, when I was getting ready for that presentation, I found a, it's a 2023 report by a think tank called Freedom House. And you can Google Freedom House. There's no affiliation with the U.S. government uh, at all that I'm aware of. And they have found, they found that in 2022, at least 38 foreign governments conducted transnational repression um, across the globe. And they break down in the report what the different types of, of activities were. But it includes kidnappings, extrajudicial murders, horrible, horrible things. So they list a bunch of the countries that were involved in it. And I think no surprise to anybody, China and Russia, top on the list, right? Imagine that. But what is of real note, Burundi is a government mm. that does this. Sudan, South Sudan. Rwanda, Iran, Ethiopia, and Laos. Why do I highlight those? All of those countries have, uh, have communities that have moved to the United States and are living in the panhandle. When I say that this can be happening to our neighbors, to our friends, to the people that we work with, I'm serious. This is... These people are part of our community. They're part of our neighborhoods and their governments have been found to conduct this activity and to be amongst the most notable offenders across the globe. I think, uh, do you talk about this to any uh, school ISDs or anything? Because I think that that, this would be something for sure, because that might be the folks that would talk because these, the, the, the younger uh, folks, the kids that are in schools, they're probably, would be more willing to talk about this happening than maybe an adult who's just been indoctrinated yeah. and lived with that their whole life. Whereas maybe a, a 15 year old or, or even 10 year old would be more apt to talk about it. I, I hadn't gotten that far down yet and I hadn't thought about it. And that's like, this is, you know, I, I said at the beginning that none of this is about me. I have been so, so grateful for, because I've been able to share this with folks who live and work here, just all of the different ideas that people have, like I ain't smart enough to think about all this stuff. That's, that's a great point, man. Cause you're right. The kid, their kids who are here in the schools, they are going to have much more connection to these freedoms potentially than their parents do. Yeah. That, that will become the next thing that's on my list of, of people to interact with. Um, and fortunately I, I may even have some connections to various school districts in the areas that, that could help me on that front. So that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, so again, I think I'm kind of running out of of steam and I'll turn it back to you guys. No, I mean, I think everything we've covered today has been fantastic. Um, we sincerely just appreciate you coming on and, um, it's been great, and I think that 
perhaps in the future as, as we kind of move forward with trying to address this issue in, in our own community as well as others. Um, we'd probably like to have you on again at some point in the future if you would be open to that. Yeah. I'd, I'd, a, like... You know, I, I, we mentioned off the air. I'm, I'm, I'm a podcast geek. Like I've, <laughs> I have really. No, so are we. This, this is both an incredible like platform to to share thoughts and information with people, but it's also an art form. And like the idea that I'm sitting on the 1023 podcast talking with you guys, that's that's just cool in and of itself. But the idea that I can help the FBI do its job of protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States, preserving life, protecting the people who live here. And I can do that in partnership with the 1023 podcast. <laughs> like, that's awesome. And if there is an opportunity where I've got something that you think would be a value for your listeners, I would welcome that opportunity. Um, and and I hope that the FBI would as well. Well, fantastic. Now, it's, it's Truly been an honor to have you on. We we appreciate it. I feel um, the same. It's been my honor. <laughs> yeah, to be no, honored. it was an eye opening uh, interview. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. There's a lot of things that I, I didn't realize and didn't know, and I think we've got a lot of things out there to the whoever may be listening. And, and we've had whatever analytics you run, we, there's people outside the United <laughs> yeah. States that listen to this podcast, and uh, I think it's uh, I think it was good educational uh, material for for everybody listening. So I, I think it's yeah. cool. Yeah. Well. I hope so, and and could not be more grateful for the opportunity, and and uh, and I'm sorry that I, I didn't have quite the same colorful stories that that other folks have <laughs> have had on yeah. this podcast. So I feel like I'm failing because because I don't have some of those uh, nah, some of those I, tales. But I would say that this this particular episode brings a little bit more sophistication <laughs> to our show, <laughs> you know, as opposed to what, the types of things we usually talk about. So. Um, no, it's been awesome, but I think we're going to call that an episode and, um, very good. We'll see everyone next time. Thanks. Hunter, Brandon, Ashley. Thanks guys. Appreciate it.